Hey everybody, on today's episode, we're discussing the 2019 film Parasite, a uh, South Korean movie directed by Bong Joon-ho. We do recommend you watch that before listening to the episode. Uh, It will make the listening experience probably just way, way more interesting. So, Mike, what is Parasite about? Well, John, Parasite is a Kafka-esque tale through which the great director Bong Joon-ho sings the glories of unfettered capitalism and the invisible hand of the free market, and of course, the perfect meritocracy that it creates when left to its majestic self-directed work. However, Within this idyllic landscape, Poe also seeks to remind us of the dangers lurking beneath any attempt to interfere with this God-given economic system. In a perfect allegory that is, I am in no way misrepresenting, Parasite masterfully flips to the horror genre, as the totally deserving pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and clearly morally superior part family invites into their beautiful, well-earned home the poor, lazy, good-for-nothing parasitic Kim family, which as we all could have predicted, leads to what charity and generosity to the poor always produces. Chaos, crime, murder, and their inevitable death. Making Parasite a truly harrowing, cautionary tale that Anne Rand would be proud of. However, ultimately, I only give Parasite 3 out of 5 stars with the obvious caveat that more stars are available for purchase at a market rate via our website. I mean, as you said, no misleading data in there at all. I, no. I think that that reading is is honestly. Do we need to do the rest of the episode? The real me? question kind is: of, Is postmodernism uh, dead? Because I feel like I just got to Ho's intent, and I've just nailed it. And I can know intent of the author. So I don't know. I yeah, think I've undermined I, the whole thing. You know what? Uh, we're, we're just going to get into the episode, but guys, honestly, after this intro, we may not have anything. Uh, so, you know, thank you. Thank you, Mike, for that. Uh, good times. Good times. Uh, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. What a poor idea. everybody welcome once again to this film could be your life the movie podcast where two friends take the films that they love way too seriously my name is jonathan divine i'm joined as always by mike overstreet who's the parasite john who's is that that's (laughs) what does this movie mean (laughs) okay i had the quote ready to go and now you've like you've 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 scooped me you scooped me does it answer my question Parasite is a 2019 South Korean, uh, this is a quote from Wikipedia, black comedy thriller drama film. That's accurate. It's like how they nailed it. We just get to the point where we're just going to smash all of these things together. And it's like, I don't know. It's one, yeah. it's some combination of that. You figure it out. Directed <laughs> by Bong Joon-ho, uh, who co-wrote the screenplay with Han Jin-wan. The cinematography was by Hong Kyung-piao. It was edited by Yang Jin-mo. The music was by Zhang Jae-il. And it stars Song Kang-ho, Lee Sun-kyun, Sho Yo-jung, Choi Wo-sik, Park So-dam, Lee Jong-yun, and Zhang Haijin, among several others. It's kind of an ensemble cast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have done 
a lot of movies on this podcast, Mike. This is, in fact, her 29th uh, movie. I genuinely do not think any of them approach the popular and critical acclaim of this movie. Yeah. The only two that get kind of close, like E.T. and Pulp Fiction, I think you can make a case. Sure. Uh, but just to run down real briefly, this movie won four Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best International Feature. It was the first ever non-English film to win Best Picture. The first South Korean film nominated for any Oscar, which is actually kind of a travesty, but let's just ignore that for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the first South Korean film to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It's the third movie ever to win the Palme d'Or and the best, sorry, and best picture at the Oscars. Uh, the prior hmm, two were 1945 and 1955, so it's also been kind of a while. Huh. It was the first non-English film to win the Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Performance by a Cast in a Motion Picture. Um, and then to top it all <coughs> against a $15.5 million budget, it grossed $263 million Woo! worldwide. Hi! Yeah! Uh, this movie is about a family that... Let me actually pull... This is one of the only times I didn't have the synopsis ready to go. So let me just pull that real quick. Uh, it, according to Wikipedia, it follows a poor family who scheme to become employed by a wealthy family and infiltrate their household by posing as unrelated, highly qualified individuals, which is frankly as much of a plot summary as saying like Save a Private Ryan is a war movie. Yeah. Right. It's yeah, like yeah, that doesn't yeah. really tell you anything about this movie, but that is technically the plot. Um, I did want to quote you again. You scooped me. But I just did have this quote from Bong Joon-ho talking about the title. He says, because the story is about the poor family infiltrating and creeping into the rich house, it seems very obvious that Parasite refers to the poor family. And I think that's why the marketing team was a little hesitant, uh, which the background on that is that they were apparently hesitant with the name. He continues, but if you look at it the other way, you can say that rich family, they're also parasites in terms of labor. They can't even wash dishes. They can't drive themselves. Mm. So they leech off the poor family's labor. They are both parasites. Um, that's just, I, I wanted to read that at the top because I wanted to give the listeners an idea of the staggering levels of layered depth and meaning and irony in this movie. Because I actually think there's even like two or three other readings just with the title Parasite. And that is, frankly, the smallest part of the conversation about this movie. Yeah. Uh, but that's just, again, to, to demonstrate, you know, we've I mentioned how acclaimed this is. I mentioned this is a very, very rich movie. This is so layered and intentionally designed and well thought out and meaningful and metaphorical. I don't know. Like, it's like more than any other movie, it just feels like we're kind of trying to climb a mountain um just to even talk about this yeah uh you know we start on that note we start by talking about our history with this movie this is one of the most recent movies we've done um but in that time again has just had a pretty staggering impact mike what is your uh history of this movie we saw it about the same time i don't remember which of us saw it first but i know that we both would have really push the other person into watching it. I'm sure that's what happened, right? Yeah, yeah. This is like the quintessential um 
Oscar movie in some ways. And I want to make sure I'm clear about what I mean by that. I don't mean in any way about the content of the film, nor even the ultimate conclusion of its run at the Oscars. I mean that in the sense of I remember when this movie hit festivals and, you know, the movie podcasts I listened to were just buzzing about it. And then you just kind of felt that buzz for this movie kind of reach an uproar over the course of months because it had crazy small releases. It was a very slow release. It kind of seeped out before it got to Tallahassee. So by the time it came here, I already knew that it had like kind of reached this crescendo of this movie might win like a lot of Oscars and some pretty big Oscars. Um, And obviously it's, it actually doing so was still shocking because you know, the Oscars generally only let bad movies win. So it was like a watershed moment for all the reasons you already talked about. But it always just comes to mind when I think about that, like the movie that you find out about because of its run through various festivals through the award season. And so, yeah, by the time it came out, I I didn't know what I I was blessed to know people like the ringer and the big picture and listen to those podcasts. And they were very, very hardcore about like, do not know what this movie's about until you go see it. So I didn't know a ton about it other than that. It was considered a masterpiece before it even hit theaters in my town. Um, and man, did it live up to the hype? It, it is one of those movies that like floored me. I think I went back and saw it again, like immediately. Um, or I watched on yeah. streaming again immediately. I don't even remember if they've, cause that was probably during COVID or at the beginning of COVID. So, so yeah, that's uh, my experience. It was it. a little bit before. Yeah, yeah. But, but it was right there. hundred percent. I, I really like the way you worded that where it started, but Frank, I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, a lot of movies generate buzz coming out of festivals, and this movie was the same. And I think what's what's like really key though is that the buzz never really slowed; it just kept yeah. building. I yeah. like the way you yeah, said yeah. it became an uproar. That by the time it finally, like you said, by the time it was finally in our town, uh, it was just it was like a big deal movie. Like I saw it several weeks after it was even in our town. And on like, I think it was a weekend, but still the theater was like packed. Yeah. It was a big theater and people were, (coughs) I don't know. It was just, there was like a moment. It was, it was, it was a, it was a sensation to a certain degree. And I'm not saying that, like, I know it wasn't, you know, the Avengers or something. It wasn't like every single person in all of society was watching it, but within a pretty wide range, especially for a, and think of all the things going against it. It's a foreign film. It's all subtitles, right? It's pretty heady stuff. I mean, it's it's pretty clearly, even if you don't know what it is going in, like you can just kind of tell it's an indie movie, so it's not going to be this advent, action adventure, you know, escapist plot. Um, and despite all that, I would argue just because the filmmaking is so good and so invigorating and exciting and. I, we're gonna get we're gonna gush a lot about this movie in this podcast, so I'll save a little bit of that for later. Because the movie was so good, I think it just that hype train just never stopped. Yeah, uh, yeah. I saw this in theaters four times, as a matter of fact. Um, and part the reason why is because I kept getting other people to go see it. But when I would like, so I would be like, "Hey, you really have to see this," and they're like, and then they would say, "Well, I'm going," you know, "You're oh okay, I'll, I'll see it," and then I'm like, you know, actually, when are you going? I'll go see it again. I don't, yeah. you know, I was yeah, I was yeah, down yeah. to watch it another time. And it never got old. I enjoyed every single time. Um, I haven't really rewatched it in the last, I guess, three years. Um, 
until now, but I watch it so much at the top that I, it has never really left my mind too much. Uh, we may talk later if it's left the mind of the collective cultural consciousness or not. I think that's an interesting conversation. Sure. Um, but yeah, this movie was just a, a, a sensation. It, it felt a little bit like uh, The Dark Knight in terms of, you know, it was the word of mouth that was powering it. Like, yeah. it, that was why I think people were still going weeks and weeks and months after it released. Well, and it's um, funny because, like, you know, I think uh, largely film culture has moved into eventized movie going. And, yeah. and what I mean by that is, like, Marvel, where it's like, there's a new big blockbuster out and everyone has to go see it on the opening weekend, whatever. Yeah. This is like the other side of that coin where this was like an event movie, but it was a lot more along the lines of like, I have no idea what I'm walking into, but everything I know about it is that it's amazing. Right. And, and there was something just so magnetic about that. And it's so rare to find a movie that has that magnetic power that, like I said, or like you kind of said, has so many barriers of entry, so many, um, easy off ramps for people who just don't want to deal with it. it it's yeah. amazing that this movie captured the attention, the imagination and drew so many people in with the strength that it did and didn't disappoint. I think that's the other cool part, which I'm sure we'll talk about. What's amazing about this movie is it brings you in and you can kind of take it at whatever level you want to take it at and still enjoy it. Um, it's actually yeah. probably one of the best strengths of the movie. So we'll get into that later, but yeah, yeah it's that's actually my first point, bonkers. so we'll, we'll get there, yeah. Sorry. No, I'm just saying it's kind of bonkers that this is a movie yeah. that did that. It's just amazing. It's it's really, really incredible. Uh, Mike, I don't remember. You're going to have to tell me if, the, if this happened or not. But is it possible that I saw this movie first and told you to see it, and you said... Uh, or you asked me, is this a scary movie? Because Ricky is not sure if she wants to go. And I said, no, definitively. And then later I got a little bit of grief from you guys that it was like, well, it wasn't scary, scary, but it was extremely intense. And I said, that is not the question that I was posed. I was posed, is this a horror movie? And I so said, no, you are. I remember the, that, the framework, but I don't remember if my details are The right. framework of your story is correct, except for Ricky never okay. saw this movie because I didn't believe you, and I went in and by myself. And what? what I told you is that is def- this is such a betrayal. I t- what I told you is I def- I was convinced she saw it. No, no, no. I remember yeah. coming to you and being like, I did not take Ricky with me. I can tell you definitively that this is what she would classify as a horror film. Um, like the basement I... scene alone would have been like her nightmare. Just the entire buildup of that scene, she would have just been oh, so my goodness. So I am mad in hindsight because I think your take is wrong. And this is not a horror movie in any way. Well, it's a you, little bit you disturbing do, and you scary. You do know my wife fine. better than I do and her taste. So oh, I've John, always said it. <laughs> take, thank you for correcting me. <laughs> Don't you know, I know everything more than you. I yeah, am yeah. never wrong. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a horror movie. If people are listening. And no, seen no, 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 if you, no, no, no. I'm just going to say, but. She fair, would, fair all enough. I'm saying I, is she would not have enjoyed the basement scene at all. That turn would have been very unpleasant for her film going. To experience. be honest with you, that turn was pretty unpleasant for me the first yeah, time I saw it yeah. too, but uh, it's incredible. <laughs> for me. We'll get to that. Um, I don't know how much we're going to have here, but I did just want to briefly touch on Bong Joon-ho. Oh, my man. He is an incredible filmmaker. 
Um, I'm going to be real, though. I've only seen three of his movies, counting this one. So, you know, you I'm monster. trash. I'm working at it. Uh, I mean, wait, how many have you seen? Uh, I don't remember. I've oh. seen. Let's see. Let's let's. Do the I run. bet it's not more than three. Let's do the. I've run. seen Memories I've of seen... Murder, Snowpiercer. Oh, I've seen a lot this. of these. Okay, so I've seen Parasite, Oakjaw, Snowpiercer, Mother, The Host, Memories of Murder. Which actually, Mike, really quick on the Oscar thing too, I, I forgot to mention. Uh, this beat. Do you remember a movie? This beat, the favorite. Nineteen seventeen. Nineteen seventeen. This was actually. I we don't need we don't need to dwell on this too much, but. That felt in the moment like a, like almost like a coup, like, because the movie that was the, you know, extreme underdog, but everyone knew was the best, right? Like, I think everyone knew going into it, like Parasite is the best movie. There's just, it is so good and it is just so bold away, everyone who's seen it. But 1917 was the movie that from the beginning was basically made to win all of these things. Yeah, it, 1917 yeah. is is the actual Oscar bait, yeah. right? Yeah. Where Parasite is an Oscar movie, 1917 is Oscar bait. And it was like, okay, you know, uh, God is dead, as you said. Yeah. There yeah. is no love in the world. And it's obviously 1917 is going to win. So it was such a big deal when it uh, didn't, when this won. I, I don't remember. It was just a very exciting moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was cool too. Uh, really quick before we get into talking about this movie, let's just briefly touch on this movie is, as I said earlier, directed and co-written by Bong Joon-ho, who's a pretty at this point. At this point, he's obviously the most acclaimed um, South my, Korean filmmaker, at least internationally. Um, Park Chan-wook is pretty high up there. Um, and like I said earlier, travesty that he hasn't gotten nominated for anything. Yeah, but sure. Whatever. At any rate, um, you know, I've seen only three Bong Joon-ho movies. They've all, they're all they uh, all pretty exceptional. I've seen Memories of Murder, which is actually, uh, Mike and I were saying a few minutes ago, as amazing as Parasite is, uh, Memories of Murder might be just as good, if not better. Yeah, uh, if, you, which if is you haven't seen that staggering. movie, yeah. go turn off this podcast and go watch Memories of Murder. You're seriously, welcome. turn off this podcast and go watch it. Uh, yeah. Because it is unbelievable is seriously one of my favorite movies i've ever seen yeah um and then snowpiercer which a lot of people like love snowpiercer am a little bit mixed on it i think more than than you mike Uh, i like it i just don't love it it just did not it it doesn't really land with me in the way that parasite yeah memories of murder do so um i'm not you've seen a lot you've seen pretty much every one of his movies i think right i have i have and i and i like all of them I think an interesting conversation, and, and I'm not the first person to make this point, so this has probably been vultured off of other movie podcasts, but an interesting point to make about Bong Joon-ho is, is, you know, on one hand, he is definitively like a genre movie maker, but he makes genre movies with some pretty amazing layers to him, as we will get into. Like, he's almost like a rich man's Ryan Johnson in some ways. Um, yeah. But what, what was really interesting about his career is when you look at Memories of Murder and then like Parasite, there's a lot of similarities. They're very grounded stories, very realistic in some ways stories, still genre movies, but they are packing commentary into kind of some very um, not over-the-top storytelling. And what's interesting with like the Snowpiercer and Oakja run is that there's just like this blip in his career where he just starts making these like, pardon my French, some batshit movies that are s- exceptional, don't get me wrong, but they move into like this high concept, 
level. And when I say high concept, I don't mean intellectual. I mean, like, there's a train that's a bullet train going around a frozen world <laughs> and people are fighting with hatchets across it. Or there's, like, a holocaust with this, like, intelligent big creature that is, like... And, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal's running around with, like, a dress on and it's bonkers. <laughs> like, it's... There's this, like, this moment where he almost, like, just starts making these movies where he's just, like, blowing the sides of the box off, right? And yeah. and Parasite, in a lot of ways, is a return to form. So I'm never really too surprised when people are like, I don't know about Oak John Snowpiercer. Because those movies are crazy. I mean, they're just, like, insanely ambitious. And they're also just, like, insanely galaxy-brained in some ways. Um, yeah. I love them, but I just want to, like, I don't want to let you off the hook entirely. But I do want to at least acknowledge that that was an interesting moment in his career where if you go back and watch Memories of Murder, you're like, how did the same director make these two movies, right? Yeah. I, I'm not sure uh, if this is in any way related, but this is just a sheer curiosity question you may or may not have the answer to. Is that in part because those were his first two not totally South Korean productions? Uh, because I know I, I know that with Snowpiercer, and I'm pretty sure that's true with Okja. Okja was a Netflix he, movie, yeah, yeah, right. And then Snowpiercer was a Hollywood studio. I don't remember who, um, but it was like co-financed, so it was partially sure. South Korean still. Uh, so I, I'm curious. Suddenly, uh, again, I don't know if, if you have an answer, any insight, you know, but I'm, I'm curious if that was part of why those became slightly more. I don't know what the word would be, but, you know, maybe over the top, maybe uh, fantastical, um, less grounded, right, th yeah. than some of his other things. It, it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard to say. Obviously, I can't speak for the man. Um, I mean, we're best friends, but I don't want to sure, speak sure. for him. Yeah, you, you don't want to call um, him up right now. It's yeah. like 2 a.m. in South Korea. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I will yeah. say The Host is a pretty, it's a monster movie, and it is a classical monster movie with some layered economic environmental themes which is kind of his shtick right it's i mean i don't want to sure. say shtick that sounds demeaning that's what he does best um yeah so and that movie is incredibly over the top so it, it's not i think honestly okja and snowpiercer remind me of like the host on steroids from a financial standpoint and maybe that's gotcha. why he kind of just like has the purse strings loosened a whole bunch when he works with netflix and makes um Maybe he just wanted to make the maybe he wanted the host to be bigger too. I don't know. But it it I guess all I'm trying to say is that sounds like it's a possible part of that equation. I think money's part of that equation. And honestly, he seems like a very creative guy. So maybe just like the fact that he could is part of the equation. Yeah. Um that, that and those, check out. those movies rule. Let me be clear. I love them. They are just distinctly different than a movie like Parasite. Gotcha. Gotcha. High recommendation, I think we would both say on anything by uh, Bong Joon-ho. Um, and then while we're talking about South Korean cinema, uh, again, Park Chan-wook, really, really, really good stuff as well. And uh, just, you know, just go find movies, not in English. There's you, some really good ones. You will not be disappointed. Uh, man, shout out also. This movie came right at the perfect time to have uh, Donald Trump like give it a hard time when it won the Oscar. Yeah, yeah uh, which yeah, yeah. like no joke. What an amazing recommendation for this movie. Yeah. I think that's what I do. This yeah. is one of my favorite movies of the last ten years. Me too. Um, good times. Uh, you want to get into it? Yeah, we let's have do a it. lot to talk about. Uh, so the way we divide this podcast, we have basically a few different sections. We're going to start with what. Uh, works about this movie for this case i think that will be pretty long oh we're gonna have God. a section of uh, what holds the movie back probably a little bit shorter i'm guessing 
<laughs> we'll have some stray thoughts, and then way later we will have uh, some essays to talk about. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna start what works with a bit of a callback to to what is kind of a dead bit on this show, <laughs> um, and that bit is the bit of me referencing what is my favorite movie of oh, all time. Oh God, are you serious? Uh, a little thing called Jaws. The reason I want to reference Jaws, though, uh, seriously, is because there's this amazing quote from this podcast Mike and I watch the rewatch or Mike and I listen to called the Rewatchables. Uh, Chris Ryan, when they did the Jaws episode, said, "When I go to see Jaws, I get every sensation you go to the movies to feel: fear, laugh, and this is now me: fear, laughter, excitement, tension. It has everything in it, right? To me, Parasite is that, but on steroids. Mm. You are." so invested in so bowled over by the sensations of this movie it is it is seriously simultaneously the funniest saddest most thoughtful most gleefully constructed most thought-provoking movie i have seen that's been released since 2015 and i'm not exaggerating in any yeah. way yeah it it is I don't know how it does it, but it manages to land. Uh, so I guess like, like, you know, in a word what I'm talking about here is just tone that, that it, again, like Jaws in that same way, it's able to hit all of these wildly different sensations that you might feel in a movie and, and way more as well uh, than Jaws. Um, it's able to touch all of these and somehow successfully execute them and land every single one of them. And you just walk out, I, I for, for my part, I just walk out of the movie totally astonished. Um, yeah. I think that was the thing that kept me coming back the most. I, when I said earlier, I saw this movie four times in theaters. That was because the whole, if the whole movie was as intense as the most intense parts of the movie, there is no way I would have seen it a second time. Yeah. If the whole movie was as funny as the funny parts or as profound as the profound parts, none of that, all of that is lesser than the whole of, having it somehow definitely float between all of those things at once. Like it's just doing so many different tones and styles and themes and executions while not feeling unwieldy or unfocused. I don't know. I'm putting that first because that is so difficult that those are the only two movies I can think of that do it really, really well. Right. Yeah. And and I'm even being a little bit farcical because Jaws does not have that many meaningful things to pull out of it. Um, don't get me wrong. When we do the Jaws episode, I'm going to try. I'm going to pull an entire life philosophy out of there. But I don't think it's really built into the movie. I, I think that otherwise it's mostly just kind of popcorn. But, you know, these are the two movies I think of that, that at least managed to hit wildly different sensations um, but again, just so so effectively. Uh, oh no, Mike, what what do you what do you have on that? Just the way that this navigates all of these different styles and tones. Yeah, yeah, I think um, you know, if you want an example for why Bong Joon Ho is one of the simply one of the best living directors currently working, this is the movie because his mastery in terms of being in total control of a very complicated movie, which is what you're describing is on like full display here. So like, it's kind of well known that Bong Joon-ho is like a meticulous storyboarder. 
to the point of like almost insanity where he is very much um, almost like a, a Kubrick style of like, I made a model of the house with everything in the exact place that I want it to be in this shot. And now we're going to spend like 18 million years getting the shot to look that way. Um, And that's like, on one hand, you know, that's the kind of artistry that's a little insane. But on the other hand, that's what you need to create a movie with such a perfect balance that you're describing, right? You have to have someone in command of a ship like this because tonally it can go off the rails so quickly if the person who is directing it is not just like, again, just totally has his hands firmly on the project. And and you can just feel it because um, you're right. Just try to capture the levels at which this movie is working, right? It is masterfully balancing its kind of two key goals between con artists genre movie and like this horror allegory um you have these scenes where the kim family is just like so much fun to watch as they con their way into the family you get some hilarious lines and and moments like when the daughter is conning her way as the art teacher psychoanalyzing like the son's painting right like that's hilarious that is comedy Amazing. Yeah. comedy gold and yet he simultaneously blends that one with allegory which we'll get into more later because it's a very rich allegory but two, like the the genre flip halfway through the movie into that horror element is so unbelievably effective. So, so yeah. well thought out that it doesn't feel out of place. And if you think about the stuff that I just described in terms of comedy, con artist, blah, 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 blah. And you say, oh, and halfway through, there's a basement scene where it becomes a horror movie for about 20 minutes. That's crazy. Like, it, yeah, you know, you brought up Jaws. It, it keep it always is like reminiscent for me of Get Out where it's like sure. the ease and effectiveness at which it conveys like these massive ideas and kind of flips between the various complicated genres it's toying with is something that feels simple because he's doing it so well, but is literally one of the hardest things I can imagine in cinema. So, Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, but I always, I always think of get out in that sense because it's just amazing. Um, oh, and one other one thing, a, one other thing. Yeah. Real yeah. Quick. Go ahead. One other thing I want to shout out about that tonal balancing is that this is a fascinating movie to compare to a previous conversation that we, you know, it had when we discussed in Bruges way back when, which is another amazing thing it does is it lands a really good tone and it has this very complex, deep allegory going on beneath it. And yet all the characters still feel shockingly human, which mm, yeah. in that podcast, we talked about how hard that is because your characters are stand-ins for like big ideas or, you know, these larger kind of in some ways preachy things you're trying to say about the world as big and weighty as that can be. So they can stop, you know, a character who defi is supposed to be like the symbol of justice or mercy is going to stop feeling human at some point. And what's amazing about this movie is that in the midst of all this juggling it's doing, it still has these characters that feel so dang alive and so dang human mm. and so dang like like easy to empathize with and to enter into the shoes of even as they do at times horrible things and and again i don't it's so easy to think that that's no small thing because he does it so well but that is astoundingly hard to do to have a stand-in yeah. for a concept also feel like he could be your brother it's amazing absolutely and it 
it serves to i mean we've we've referenced already several times the way you know, I, I keep going back to this idea of the movie working on several layers is, is just the imagery i'm i'm using but yeah I, I mean that's kind of what we're talking about right like you can watch this movie i mean it'd be staggering to me if you watch this movie and miss the allegory but you could and it would still be a amazing movie to watch like you could only be invested with the characters as like as you said as characters as humans as people and it is still an exceptional movie but then once you dig a little bit deeper and follow some of the breadcrumbs that are frankly pretty obvious then you start peeling back the layers and it's like well also this is saying something really profound about i mean you know any number of things how we relate to each other socioeconomically how cap how you know financial systems roll over as blah 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 like a lot of different really interesting themes that we'll be getting into it's all there and somehow like you said, I think balance is a great word too that you used. It's yeah. also it's somehow balancing all of that. Um I don't know I don't know when or how we want to talk about individual scenes, but you referenced the basement scene. Yeah. So yeah, I really want it. to talk about it. So what maybe we could just trade back and forth a couple of our favorite scenes cuz I mean, you have to start with the basement because it is one of the best turns of of like any yeah. movie I've ever seen. I've never, you know, I, I know I keep using superlatives in this and I'm, I'm sorry if that you're, you know, if you're someone who hears that and just like rolls their eyes, but I, I seriously don't know if I've been in a theater that felt as full of tension as the theater did when I first saw this movie. And, uh, it, what I, I, the shot I remember, because it, you're basically on edge as soon as, uh, Moon Guang shows up, right? So yeah. Moon Guang is the old housekeeper. And so they're having the party in the park's house. And when once she shows up, you're already like extremely unsettled. Yeah, and there's all these little like things crazy, like the shot you know, of she feels yeah, crazy. She looks crazy. <laughs> that, that shot of her uh, through the doorbell system in the rain, like she looks just not, there's something uncanny about it. You can't see her eyes because of the glare off her glasses. And it's just really weird. And that scene keeps ratcheting up the like something is slightly off vibe. Um, and in the moment that it just goes over the edge is when suddenly she opens the door or she pushes back the cabinet mm. and starts going down to the basement. And then you follow the mom, uh, the Kim mom. And like that single shot as we're following her down into the basement, into utter blackness so, also like into the utter blackness yeah, yeah. is so harrowing. And so, and it's, it's totally unexpected in the context of the movie. You have no idea that's about to happen. And you're just sitting there thinking, what is happening? What is happening? What yeah. is happening? I'm so unsettled. I'm so, I guess you're right. It is a little bit of a horror movie. As I say it out loud, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's not for everyone. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like that moment is just the height of like Hitchcockian suspense, horror, intensity. I don't know whatever words, other words you want to throw at it. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. I, I, I just, it. And the whole movie turns on it. It's, well, it's, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's why I keep bringing up Get Out because I, I do think, like, for, for me, him and, and Jordan Peele, like, for the, the bang for their buck are like the two most exciting directors working right now for sure. moments yeah. like that. Because I always think of the scene in Get Out where he's like, get the keys out of the purse, get the keys out of the purse. 
if you've seen this movie, I'm sorry for spoiling Get Out. Fast forward 30 minutes. <laughs> and then and then she does the thing where she's like, you know, I'm not going to get the keys. And suddenly she's a sociopath and she goes blank emotionally. And the, that whole movie flips in that moment where suddenly you're like, what am yeah. I watching? And it is like in both those scenes, the tension is at like 100 percent. And then it just hits you with almost like this. It's not a letdown or even like a valve leak. It, it's just like suddenly the excitement goes down, but you enter into a scene that is at the peak of that excitement. You enter into like utter confusion of even what story you're watching. Right. Because yeah. you think about the, the basement scene in this. There's that horrifying tension as it goes down. And then there's like a scene where she's holding her husband as he drinks milk out of a baby's bottle. And yeah. And you still feel tense, though. That's what's amazing. Like, nothing intense is happening anymore, but you're just like, what? In, in, I, in my opinion, that tension is the confusion of, what movie am I in? I thought I knew where this yeah. was going, and I'm in a very alien land. Like, this is very different territory than I thought you were going, right? very rapidly. Yeah, yeah, and that's amazing. That's just, like, so exciting to me. It's what makes me love these directors. Yeah, uh, it's just, it's incredible. Um Mike, why don't you go? What do you, what do you have for why this movie works? Um, I think, well, I want to, I know we're going to get into some major themes. So I actually want to wait on that until the end of this section. And I want to do one of the two technical points that I have. So I'm going to let you pick. There's for me, when you get down to like the, the concrete practical excellence of this movie, there's the ensemble nature of the cast. And then there's just the literally perfect set design. I want to gush about both. So, John, which of those two do you think you would? Uh, you gush about the acting. I'm going to gush about the set design. Perfect. I have a lot to say about that. Let's do yeah. that. So, so yeah, the cast of this movie is absolutely like perfect. Um, yeah. What is amazing about this movie, in my mind, is that no actor particular stands out because every single one of them steps up almost to the same degree of quality. Um, in a sense, they all stand out, so none of them stand out, is what I'm trying to say. Um, the yeah. level at which these characters execute their roles within a perfect script is one of the greatest achievements of the movie, um, which in a lot of ways is a bummer, because I do think it led to no individual actually getting recognized for a movie like this. Um, but, you know, on the Kim family, I always, 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 like, love the dad character, Kang Ho Song, right? That's the actor. Yeah. He plays Key. And this character as a dad is literally my favorite dad of almost like any movie ever. Like, yeah. I love how he balances. My man is like always trying to find positives and things. He's always trying to be like, oh, I'll think of the bright side of life. And that's also, you know, one of the depressing, most depressing character arcs of the movie as he slides into despair. And then eventually that uncontrollable rage that like comes out of this guttedness of his character as his hope fails, right? Or his optimism fails. And that he he delivers that balance and that slide and those two sides of that coin with such deep humanity and such lovability and such like accessibility that it makes his performance absolutely heartbreaking. So like I really want to start with him. I have a couple more actors, but I'm not sure if you want to jump in on him or I'm going to jump in else. on him. Everyone else, I'm going to uh, ad lib a little bit, but he's the only one I wrote things down for. Um, Cause I, I yeah, he, he's exceptional and yeah. it's funny you say no one stands out. I actually do think he stands out a little bit. He's amazing. Uh, the yeah, only I, reason I say I that, started there yeah, yeah. for a reason for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest thing I, from, from him and you're right. I mean like just real quick on terms of all the actors, there's no weak link at all. 
yeah. right? And and at all, at all. Everyone really lands everything. But he, to me, is so interesting because he actually has this insanely wide range of emotions he has to convey, and including what is, to me, the funniest moment of the entire movie and one of my favorite moments of any movie ever, uh, which is when... Which is when they are framing Moon Guang as having, I believe, <laughs> yes. tuberculosis. Dude, I wrote, and, I, I wrote, give this man an Oscar for his performance convincing that, that the maid has tuberculosis. That <laughs> facial expression. And I just want to, if you are, this is a podcast, so I can't show you anything. But please go watch the scene or just watch the movie. But when he pulls out the ketchup yes, or, you know, yes, the sauce yes. handkerchief, it looks back with the gravest facial expression I've ever seen. It's hysterical. <laughs> Give it's him an amazing. Oscar. Come on. But the fact that he has to do that, but then he also has to do the scene where he's lying on the floor of the gymnasium and this dad who has so far been the most vocal, hopeful, always have a plan person basically deconstructs his entire worldview in front of you where yeah. he says there is no plan that succeeds. The only plans that succeed or fail. <sighs> and then also after that has to sell that moment when Mr. Park pulls back on um, Jean-Say and like like pulls back from the smell of him. Yeah. And in that moment gets so consumed with rage at that, at the injustice of that, that he stabs him. Those are three wildly different things to have to sell, right? Yeah. Like you have to be a truly gifted actor, I think, to land all of those moments and make me totally buy that character. Um so I just wanted to shout him out for that. Everyone else, like I said, I didn't write anything down for. Everyone else is amazing. But those, the fact that he's doing all of that work is truly astounding. Those are three of the biggest or, or most important moments of the whole movie. Yeah. And they're totally different, and he lands all of them. And it's incredible. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. yeah. the We are talking about other scenes and kind of moved off of it, but you know that did bring to mind this movie's emotionally affecting scenes almost were always tied to him. The ones that like hit you in the gut, yeah. you know, the look on his face when he's hiding under the table and he hears the family talking about his smell. Oh, I forgot about it. Yeah, so God. emotionally affecting. And then obviously the monologue to the sun and the shelter where his brave face falls apart and his hope dies, yeah. like literally dies. Like you're describing it, it is amazing that you can kind of find that within an actor who's also at times playing the clown character or at least like the no sweat off my back character you know and yeah and, and yeah and then obviously the end of this movie is a scene that we you're going to notice podcast listeners that we're not going to talk about that that's because john's uh, monologue is going to dive into that scene explicitly but that's another one where him and the son are just i mean giving physical performances within that daydream that are just yeah gut-wrenching and beautiful in, in the line yeah. delivery and the whole thing. So, yeah, I feel like we need to talk about another actor, but that man, I wish he was my dad. He's, it, he's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. I love you, Dad. Yeah, recurring um, theme on this podcast, huh? Yeah. Like, do, yeah. like just other people as dads. It's good, so, good stuff. Good, good so times. I, I don't have a ton to say about any other specific actor. Actually, I do have one. So the other one that I really, really want to shout out is um, the actress Sodom park she plays ken yoon and she is the daughter of the kim family and i actually right. think as good as he is at doing a variety of different parts or different like kind of tones and, and characters in this movie what she does is she focuses on one aspect of the movie that she crushes and that's the con artist part of the movie she is yeah. by far the best actress of this movie when it comes to being the con man or the con woman she is so yeah. funny in this movie 
we already mentioned when she's psychoanalyzing the painting is one of the funniest parts of this movie it is a performance for the ages as she like basically tears apart this like vapid kind of I, who knows what's going on with the mom but this very vapid yeah. woman um psychologically just kind of twists her around her finger and then uh, gets into the house and it is just like again chef's kiss con artist performance i love it and and i yeah. like that she's she's here almost like as the expert for that that aspect of the film um, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with all of that. I, I think just real quick too, um, like so you mentioned the mom character being a little bit a little bit vapid. I think that you know one of the secret uh, ingredients of this movie is the grayness in morality of all the characters. Yeah, any of the characters has a pretty good case to be like a good person or a bad person. Yeah. And ultimately that's because that language is pretty stupid when trying to talk about these characters. Like none of them are just good or just bad. Um, I'm talking about Daw Song, obviously. That son, yeah. I don't like him. He's got, you know, bad blood on that kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bad um, kid, bad no, kid. <laughs> yeah, bad kid, bad kid, bad seed. Uh, but no, everyone kind of, you know, sits between both spaces. I think about the Park family with that specifically, though, because mm -hmm. by definition, they sit in a weird space. They're not the protagonists, obviously. The Kim family are who we are actually invested in. But they they sell both sides of that. On the one hand, I think there's so many things about them to detest, especially in that last, um, that last act, right? As they are, uh, you know, setting up this lovely garden party, uh, literally on the backs of people who are suffering immensely, and you're just like, okay, well, this you guys yeah. are terrible. Let them eat cake, um, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and, and but they do that, and they manage to convey like, okay, we are exploiting people. We don't know we are exploiting people. We are kind of good people in terms of how we approach the world, but when push comes to shove, we are always going to take what is what we want for ourselves. And that's just a lot of stuff to convey and not a lot of scenes. And yeah. I think the, the mom and the dad specifically are just really good at that. And those are some of the most important scenes in the movie. And like I said, they're in this weird flux state of, of antagonist slash just sort of there. And it's like, what role are they playing? That's just really hard. So I think yeah. those are the only other two that I'd have a strong shout out for. Having said that, I didn't have their names ready to go. Uh, so let me unless you have that let me yeah that. it's uh the the father it's dong's character he is sun kyun lee and then um yi jong cho plays the mom yeah and they are both yep, phenomenal yep. and and i do think yep. when we were talking or when i was talking earlier about the strength of this movie in terms of being a movie that creates humanity out of almost purely allegorical characters the those two characters are who i think of the most right um, yeah, I the, agree. Mo the mother is a allegory for this woman who is trapped within the wealth as the person on the top of the ladder is just as trapped in the system as the people on the bottom in some ways, though hers is a more existential and emotional box and home that she's like locked inside. Right. And she's pretty yeah. critical for obviously for this movie's conversation on wealth. If it's going to not just demonize the people at the top, but rather kind of take sight at the entire system itself, you have to have that character be in some way human and empathetic. Um, and yeah, the dad, I think he is one of those characters that works so well in terms of his facial expression with a, the script, right? 
There is a scene in this movie yeah. where he is talking about the driver having sex in the back of his car, and he's not upset about the act itself, but he delivers this line where he says, why would he cross the line like that? And he's talking about mm. him having sex in his seat rather than in the front seat where he drives the car. And in that moment, that character is the allegory, right? It's yeah. w- what is the aversion? What is the the disgust that he's feeling? It's not the act. It's that he crossed some invisible hierarchy, right? He crossed yeah. the boundary between yeah. us and them. And in that moment, you get a sense of the humanity of this character that is, in this case, detestable. But still, you see him as a human being. But it's also conveying a very deep message on power and hierarchy and status and all that stuff. And again, I don't think this character works as nearly as well as it does in this movie if you do not in some way come away thinking that he is a human being. And and both of them deliver that as actors. So, big praise. Totally agree. Absolutely. Uh, do you just want to go through any other actors you wanted to talk about? Um, just want to shout out uh, Cho Woo-sik. He plays the son, Ki. Ki Woo. And uh, I don't really have anything else to say about him other than it's heartbreaking. And he delivers... Yeah. Uh, just a couple lines that are gut wrenching. Yeah. So, uh, which we'll get to, but some of the yeah. absolute saddest moments of the movie. Yep. Um, and then suffice it to say, everyone else is incredible too. We've yeah. already kind of said that, yeah. but everyone kills in this movie. Um, let's talk about the set design. Ooh, so there's mama. a lot of amazing sets in this movie. Uh, you know, the, the sub basement of the Kim house, uh, th- that is the Kim house. I looked up and is, pretty fascinating they went to all these different towns they shot in uh like in that scene where they're running basically from the park house all the way to their house and it's raining those are all shot uh in and around seoul but also in a few different places that were actually scheduled to be torn down which is how they could destroy them a little bit and stuff (laughs) like that um so you know those kinds of design choices are amazing but the what we really taught what we're talking about when we say let's talk about the set design is we're talking about the house which just has yeah. to go down as, 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 you know, possibly the single greatest uh, set ever in a movie, right? So, first of all, a lot, a lot of people don't know, um, the house was totally a construction for the movie. It does not exist. That is apparently a question they have gotten a lot of, like, where is this house? Ironic to me that someone would maybe be interested in visiting or even buying this house, <laughs> but whatever. Um, doesn't make sense to me, but okay. Uh, <laughs> So this house, uh, first of all, I wrote, it's just an effects triumph because what yeah. I learned in the research, Mike, is that the complete house was never built. Yeah. Um, it's a set. The whole thing's a set. It's a set. Yeah. The, uh, well, it's a set and the they built, like, so there's a physical set that represents the kind of lawn area and the ground floor, but the second floor doesn't exist. There's just a blue screen there. So if you ever see the, the complete house, it just, yeah, did you know that? No, that's The second wild. floor doesn't even exist. Um, and so any shot from the second floor looking out is against a blue screen and any shot of the building that includes the second floor that is being wow. blue screened into it. Isn't that wild? Yeah. That blows um, my mind. And then obviously like the basement and the, and the, the sub basements, basement stuff is all indoor sets as well. And so it's all totally constructed. Um, he had a lot to say about it. I'm not going to read or I'm not going to like quote or anything, but basically they just spent an immense amount of work on this because they were like, we want this to be, to look to, or to, to feel like an authentic piece of architecture. Cause we mm. talk about that a lot in the movie, right? It yeah, comes up yeah, quite yeah. often. 
But they designed it to meet the needs of the film. And they talk about trying to balance that a lot where it's like, you know, we wanted the set. We The set was totally constructed thinking about specific shots or moments or composition of shots or cinematography or lighting or different things. So the fact that even though it's constructed like that, you still look at it and feel like this is just a really nice house that I would like to live in is kind of an accomplishment. It, yeah. It's sort of insane. Um, and then just broadly speaking, the house contains probably 80% of the movie's action and very nearly every single pivotal scene with the notable exception of the flooding of the Kim house happens in the park's house. Um, and you just, and it just works for that. It's just like the fact that they find so many different ways of shooting just the living room so that even at the end, like you're having shots there that feel like different and unique and organic. Um, the shot I actually think about the most that comes very late in the movie, but is just such an interesting shot within the house is when, um, Zheng Se, uh, is having just, uh, smashed over Kiwu's head with the rock comes up to the top floor during the party and walks through the kitchen and then stops and goes back and grabs a knife, which is pretty harrowing. This is all over silence, by the way. And then walks over into the party and is unnoticed, obviously for a few minutes until he starts attacking people. But that whole just sort of, uh, panning through the house with him is is such a I don't know it's just incredible set design and and to me that was the moment where I thought I could tell that they designed this specifically for that reason yeah you know I mean um, it's incredible yeah I don't know what else to say it's incredible um, yeah yeah and I think yeah. the the two houses are and honestly the set design beyond it even but mostly like you said we're talking about set design we're talking about the two houses um they are kind of what comes to mind when I think about that meticulous storyboarding, right? Every detail about those houses is fascinating, both in terms of, like you said, the sheer clear amount of attention that went into every detail of them. But also it's a reminder that, you know, this is a master as seen from the fact that every detail of his set feeds the story and allegory and then vice versa. Right? Like the whole yeah. allegory of this movie could be summarized by the fact that, Two people live in two houses. One's at the top of the hill. One's at the bottom of the hill. The placement yeah. of those homes and how much thought went into their design literally directs the course of their entire lives and how they see the world, right? Um, Actually, one, I think you could summarize the allegory just in terms of when it rains, one of them becomes more beautiful and 100%. one of gets flooded. Yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. It's literally the difference between the sterile environment that is safe from the storms and the one that gets full of a river of feces when, when nature comes, right? And... Yeah, and, and I mean, and again, it's it's all about detail. One is artsy and it's architectural and it has all these things that are pretty much useless other than the beauty of looking at them. The other one, every inch of their house has a concrete purpose, many of which the house is clearly not designed for, right? But that's the nature of poverty. And yeah, yeah it's just, it, it's astounding. It, the set design, like I said, is so deeply intertwined with the goal and the message of the movie and the story of its characters and they all are informing each other in this kind of back and forth way um, that yeah. just, again, I keep saying this, but it just makes you realize how much of a master you are in the hands of as you watch this movie. Yeah. Can't, I can't agree enough. Um, I don't know if I have anything more for the set design specifically. Uh, do you, am I going to move on from that? Yeah, I'm good. I mean, yeah. do you want to just go into the allegory of this movie? Because at some point, we got to tackle that. I mean, we're, we're, yeah. Why, why don't you take that? So, so 
Yeah. Well, I mean, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is one of the most effective allegories I have ever seen. And in particular, as an allegory. Did you see the Disney uh, um, Chronicles of Narnia, though? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If the lion. So, like, is the lion supposed to be Churchill? I always I miss was, that. Oh, Mike, I think he might miss it. The lion was actually Jesus. What? Yeah, I know. It's, I'm not it's, sure if you know this, John, crazy. but both of my yeah. monocles just popped out. Um, <gasps> that's a surprise. So. That's a big deal. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's like, again, this movie is, is, is literally what allegory was made to do. And it, especially as an exploration of capitalism and the system of it, I, I truly think the reason we talk about this movie sticking with us both when we saw it and now all these years later is because of how effectively it acts as like a parasite in a lot of ways. Like it gets under your yeah. skin and it gets stuck in your brain. And that is because it is such an effective metaphor um, told well. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you, do you want me just to like go nuts and walk through the things that impressed me about this allegory? Or do you want to break it down into bite-sized pieces? I don't know how you want to do this, John. I have a lot to say I about think- this. Yeah, man, I think just go for it. I, I'll I'll jump in, but I think if just start, uh, yeah, go nuts a little bit. What do you got? Yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, clear out one on one ISO. So like, one I I kind of have three broad categories for thinking about what impresses me about the allegory of this movie. I think one is is very broad, and in a lot of ways, it's the trick of the movie. This movie is very clever and almost deceitful in the emotions it's drawing out of you just so they can turn them on its head. And what I mean by that is the fundamental like message of this movie is that it has a profound understanding um, and a very tricky depiction of power dynamics in the system mm. of capitalism that these people exist in. And what I mean by that is the entire movie, he is intentionally setting you up to feel as if the poor family, the Kim family is in control. They are, conning and deceiving and tricking with ease this like very stupid naive rich family and what's so smart about that is that the entire time he's setting you up to get slapped in the face because what he's trying to get you to do is forget that they actually have no power at all that they only got the jobs because the rich person was able to so easily get rid of the people before them on their same social status on a whim right and that's ultimately yeah. always in the background of this movie, even when you forget it. You're like, oh, the Kim family is getting some sense of control over their life. And that's a fundamental delusion baked into the storytelling and the arc of this movie. That's amazing. And that says so much already about just the nature of systems and ultimately what power is in a have and have nots kind of society. And then what you go from there, the second major category that is always blows me away is how successfully ambitious this movie is in terms of both its small and its large details at like conveying the central theme of this competition between the classes and the system they exist within. And just like these really small levels. And then obviously these larger kind of frame, I think the small ones always blow me away. Like you get these scenes where you see the Kim family choosing to let the fumigation come into their home because it's free extermination, right? That's like the first scene, by the way, exactly. Isn't that such an incredible uh, introduction to, yeah. them in their state yeah absolutely and, and it's getting you to laugh kind of but at the same time it's like slowly starting to like i said burrow into your brain this very unsettling truth about the world in which we live like we as western people live right um in which you're laughing but you're like oh my gosh this is actually a necessity you get another one like you get these small moments where min is asking key to take over tutoring his crush because he assumes that key can't be a threat 
right? He can't be a romantic threat yeah. to this person. You get them these moments where it's like, again, details, eating as much as they can wherever they get food. And then the difference of the food presented in those two homes where there's the luscious fruit and then there's like cereal and there's pizza and there's junk food. You get the contrast. One of my favorite small details of this movie is the contrast of the concept of privacy between the two families, right? The mm, rich home yeah. feels secluded as it exists within the city and their home is constantly being invaded by the outside world in an utterly disgusting way. People pissing yeah. on their windows, poop coming up through their like closet space, effectively flooding their home, right? The different responses to the elements, like you said, rain is a fun time on top of the hill, but at the bottom, it's an utter nightmare, right? These are very small details that are kind of woving this thread of this larger ambition of its allegory, which is to get at the system driving both families. Like Ho is obsessed with normal people caught in like the circumstances or these systems that are so deeply beyond their control that they only yeah. even start to realize they're trapped with them when they spiral them into like chaos and ultimately death in the case of this movie. And that is yeah. astounding. And I have a lot to say about those larger themes, but I guess I should clear out and make some room for you to respond. <laughs> I'm just always so impressed by like these massive currents of the film that literally saturate down to like these smallest, like you said, introductory moments of the movie, all conveying a, a cohesive and centralized theme about systems and the way that they direct our lives right especially in a Absolutely. capitalist world so whoo i need to take a breath so i'm gonna like take a step back <laughs> take, a look, take, take a breath take a breath get some water get some gatorade in there yeah uh get yeah cut him he's he's blind uh i totally agree <laughs> obviously me, with me, what you're, <laughs> um i totally agree obviously and, and it's like we could i i you know we could dive in on on even more of them which we we would have to limit ourselves at one point I do want to just mention one thing, one other kind of meta part of this allegory that I really love, and then just a general kind of note about how this affects rewatchability. But the, the only one I think you missed that I, I think about a lot is the idea of Zheng Se in the basement mm. um, creating a shrine to Mr. Park and turning on the lights for him Yes, um, as he walks into his house every day. And that one, actually, the main reason I think about it is because it's the only one that the first time I saw, I thought, is that a little too on the nose? And I decided it's not. I think it's totally works within the universe of the film. But it's it's arguably the most striking um, because it's someone, it's, it's just literally someone on the, without any knowledge of what his, the effect he is having on people or on these other people around him right i'm talking about mr park on jung say who's sitting down there devoting his life to him turning on his lights creating a shrine to him and is completely unseen by that other person so much so that once he gets into this state where they actually meet each other as he's sitting there dying you know Mr. Park can't even do anything, but he's, he just rolls over his body. Even as the guy says, like, he looks at him and he says, like, you know, oh, my God, it's Mr. Park. And he talks about how important respect is. He's obviously a little crazy in that moment. But still, Mr. Park has nothing for him except to roll him over so he can get out his keys, right? Yeah. And as he does so, you know, roll back uh, at how bad the guy smells. Yeah. And, and that in and of itself is just such, I think a powerful representation of the relationship of the ultra poor 
Because I think even compared to the Kims, right, the Zhang Se is in a pretty bad state. So the relationship of the ultra poor to the ultra rich is just so there's so much devotion on the one side and indifference on the other. Yeah. And I think that is pretty intense. And the, the one note I wanted to make about the allegory in general, then, because this is a great example, is it also really aids the rewatchability of the film. Not that it's not a rewatchable film, but this is like a huge reason why, because the whole movie is full of these interactions. And once you get to the end, I think you have a slightly better understanding of those interactions Mm -hmm. and you can go back and see them all. So first of all, you see things that you didn't even, so like every time Mr. Park comes in, um, the, the, the lights light, that turn the lights on turn are in on. frame. Yeah. 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 Which came back to just the framing and the set design and everything. It's like, they are very careful to make sure you see those constantly, but you never think about it. You don't even give it a second thought, just like Mr. Park would never give it a second thought. Right. But then you rewatch it and you're like, oh my God, the whole time he's down there doing this. Um, so, so, I mean, I don't have any other examples off the top of my head, but, but that's just a thing, right. In the movie too. I think that's, just in terms of filmmaking, that's a really important side of it is that the allegory also just helps create incentive, you know, almost like brain brain food to, to rewatch it and to find these things and these interactions in different lights. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right. That That's almost its own category of the, the power of this allegory is what also, like you said, kind of creates the rewatchability of it. You know, I think on, on this rewatch, a classic example is it just like hit me um, the moment where the maid stops calling the other family sis and starts calling them scumbags yeah. the moment that she has power over the interaction and in the living room. And you're just like, oh, this is that theme of competition among the lower class as they yeah. essentially tr- strive to like move up the ladder, even though they are pretty much completely, you know, trapped within the setting and they're blaming each other never the rich family like you said they devote their lives to the rich family which is also a fascinating contrast to the end where the the father kills him because it's like Mm. you suddenly have this explosion of violence from this resentment that neither family is acknowledging towards those above them in the social order until it comes out in these destructive ways again yeah that is just it saturates the movie and you could pick up any one scene and find that and that is the without ever feeling like Bong Joon-ho is talking down to you like he's judging his characters like he's losing their humanity I mean that's that's the the literally the aspiration of anyone trying to write an effective allegory um absolutely I don't know. it's amazing yeah absolutely I totally agree uh I just have a couple more small things uh we've talked quite a lot about what makes this movie work so I'll just kind of blow through these uh the music is exceptional um it's a very classical instrumentation. It centers on this kind of drifting piano and these light strings and light percussion. Just like the broader movie, I really like that it accentuates wildly different tones. Mm-hmm. Like during all the caper moments, it kind of becomes very playful and very fun and very exciting. Uh, again, culminating with the like extremely dramatic classical music with the tuberculosis thing, which I just keep going back to. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. But then obviously it gets very somber, uh, especially near the end, and quite often just totally pulls out, which is oh my gosh, a very when the, when smart the mom decision. kicks the maid down the stairs and it just cuts the yeah. silence. Woo! 
Yeah. That's tough. I was actually thinking, again, I already referenced this, but when Jung Se comes up and gets the knife from the kitchen, total silence during essentially that whole scene. Yeah. Um, And then we're going to talk about at the end, but there's there's a lot of silence in the very end of the movie as well. Uh, So, yeah, the music's incredible. Uh, it's perfectly paced. It's it's a, it's a cool two hours ten, but it moves perfect. fast. Just perfect. Uh, that basement scene I mentioned earlier, almost exactly halfway through the movie, like Ugh. to the minute, almost exactly Ugh. halfway through. It's just incredible filmmaking, right? It's it's like yeah. what are we doing here? Um, and then you know this one is is almost too broad, and we've also kind of already said it, but the script is just really good. I just want to know. Yeah, it's just extremely. It, the story has all of these interlocking allegories, like you said, all these di- li- different kinds of layers. It also has all of these different tones and styles, and everything complements each other. It balances itself really well, and it also has a lot of really thought-provoking moments and lines and different things. We've already mentioned most of those, so I won't get too much into that. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just incredible. There's literally no part of this movie that I think you can single out as like a weak link as something that uh, doesn't really work, which I mean, Mike, was there anything else for you on what makes this movie work? No, I think I'm, I mean, all of it. Yeah. So with that, uh, what holds this movie back? Uh, I got two things, Mike. It's kind of incredible. I have two things actually, but I do have two things. Firstly, practically there were one or two cultural things that, might confuse an outside audience. This, to be clear, sure. is not something that the filmmakers have done wrong. In terms of like the spirit of what holds this back, quote unquote, we this we did this in um Spirit Away too, where it's like, I just feel like it's worth mentioning just because I don't know. It true it does technically hold it back. It's no one's fault, obviously. If anything, it's my fault for not knowing more about other cultures, but it's like, I don't know, it is what it is. Um the specific thing i wanted to mention because i actually found it out so i was researching different things about this movie i was just going through like trivia and stuff um this one was a big one that i I totally missed i'm curious to hear if if what you had about this so the underage daughter making out with her older male tutor i kind of flagged as like huh right which i I think most probably most of us probably would apparently that is a deconstruction slash parody of an extremely common trope in Korean drama Mm. where an underage daughter of a rich family falls in love with her tutor. That basic plot point is just like hyper familiar. It's just everywhere. And so based on what I read, it's like, you know, the Korean audience would have immediately seen that and thought about that kind of story, which usually centers on the young couple like falling in love, but then having to wait until she's in university to reveal it because otherwise it's scandalous. Um, by which metric parasite is like a kind of a deconstruction or inversion of it. Right. Because obviously, first of all, there's not much spark in the relationship that we can really see. But second of all, um, things don't really end up working out that way. Like it's, it's from what I read, it is very important. Like the whole point of the story is about the culmination of it. Um, of how they reveal it or don't reveal it. And also the fact that the guy is, is like wor- working class is usually part of the story as well. And again, this movie just takes all those ideas, but mostly goes wildly different directions with them. So I only bring that up as an example of like, I, I wonder what other cultural things like that were totally lost. Sure. And so that's technically holds the movie back because I'm like, okay, well I'm, I'm missing some of what makes this movie 
even better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have anything on that or? No, it's just interesting. Right, it's like yeah. uh, uh, two sons and a father in the Bible, right? You're like, this is a trip sure. that I just don't even understand. But the audience that heard this story would immediately bring 12 other stories to mind. So fascinating thing. I think I think the way I once heard it described, because, you know, it's worth commenting on real quick, because I think sometimes we fall into forgetting that we have the same things. Uh, a great example might be like if you saw a movie that parodies the... Uh, the let's get the gang together for a caper, right? Like sure. you think of that yeah. as just a story point, but that is a trope. And the reason why a parody of that works is because you recognize it from the get go of, yeah. okay, I know what they're doing. This is the Ocean's Eleven thing. Yeah. Um, that's like a, I don't know, it's just a random example I came up I mean, with. But even, there's, there's thousands of these that you. Even like you, the Romeo, yeah. Romeo and Juliet, right? Two families sure. for mooring houses get together, you know, it ends in tragedy. Um, it would be like someone taking that and making it in well in the end. And you're like, oh, wow, you just subverted this. What? Um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. That's it. It's in, And unfortunately, right. by the nature of, of culture, of being just white, stupid Americans, we, we miss. Yeah, it. yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my only other what holds this movie back. They're making a TV series of yeah. this movie. Um, it's not of the movie. It's kind of unclear what it's going to be. Uh, and... Adam McKay is executive producing with oh, no. Boon Jung Ho. Yeah, no, that was exactly my response. I was so curious. If and you were I like do what Adam I McKay. But I do too. He's but not the worried. tone. He's not the tone for this. He's not <laughs> the tone. Imagine, also, can you imagine if this are, movie yeah, yeah. had uh, the characters breaking the fourth wall and explaining like It'd capitalism to us? <laughs> It'd be so bad. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote here. What I wrote is I well, for, I wrote hmm because I'm just like I don't know. I'm I'm just. I'm just a little skeptical. I mean, Boon Jung Ho is is attached. At least he's it's working not on it. Specifically, yeah. this movie. It's like I think it's kind of unclear right now if it's like around these events or just totally unrelated, but about mm. the same themes. So it's unclear. Um, I'm not saying it's going to be bad. Just that I will be very surprised if it ends up feeling like necessary, right? Well, it's like it's I'll so... be shocked if it feels like it really adds something like, substantial. To literally. This movie pause this podcast and go spend three hours of your life watching don't look up and you'll see the opposite of all the positive things i said about allegory and parasite like yeah and again i like adam mckay but he is he does not have human characters as allegories he is not subtle he does not it's it's i i guess his allegory is woven throughout the whole film but it's as hand heavy-handed as possible like it's in your face yeah um and, and yeah i don't I'll give also, it a chance, I'm starting to but detect I'm skeptical. That people are, I'm starting to detect that people in general are like slightly over Adam McKay. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, just in I think like so. the response to winning time, uh, the response to uh, uh, don't look up, as he said, is I think people are just like, yeah, we get, we get it. We get your thing. Yeah. We get it. So I, I'm, I'm nervous, I guess. Yeah. Is, uh, and so I put in what holds the movie back. Uh, that's all I got. You may notice neither of those are actual criticisms. That is uh, intentional. I don't have any actual criticism of the movie. I literally don't. I couldn't. I tried. I couldn't think of any. Yeah. Mike, what about you? Uh, I have none for the film itself. I mean, I'm not kidding. This cool. is perfect. This is a perfect movie. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 just, do, I don't know. I just don't know. I, yeah. I have two outside world things to throw onto that. Um, briefly, you know, one, this movie's a bummer, and. <laughs> Yep. You know, you, you talk a lot about visceral movies being things that you don't rewatch because, like, it upsets you. 
this is like the opposite of that. The rewatch is fine. It's me sitting with its themes for like three weeks afterwards as I spiral yeah. into existential despair about the world and my part complicit within it um, that I don't really enjoy. Like, I don't really like that I watch this movie and I'm like, for literally since I watched it last week, I've just been like, oh, hey, I'm part of the problem that's broken this world. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, And that sucks, but it's not his fault. It's actually the effectiveness. You need those profits. It just yeah. makes it a tough hang. Again, not during the movie, which is the best part about it. Yeah. It's like the processing afterwards. Um, I would say it, if you yeah. have seen, if you watch this movie and within two or three weeks, don't seriously consider the possibility that our economic systems are irreparably broken in terms of how they work for people, then it's possible you haven't thought about this movie enough. Yeah. Like that's how far yeah. I would go is I would yeah. say that is just such an integral part of, like you said, the almost the aftershock of watching it, um, which is not easy to recommend. It's not like, yeah. it's not exactly the vibe on a weekend. Uh, but yeah, so you're right. I, I think yeah. it's a good point. And then, and then the last one is, you know, in a, in a way, winning an Oscar kind of hurts this movie, um, which is silly because it is such a watershed moment. And it's so important to have this movie win the Oscar. And I'm so glad it did. But you and I both were like, why haven't we watched this since it came out? And you're like, oh, yeah, because the Oscar race made it like the thing that people talked about nonstop for like four months. And honestly, yeah. I need a three year break from it. And I don't think like there will be blood. I have watched every year just about since it came out. And there's just something about this movie becoming such a thing when it when yeah. it hit that it, it almost made me not return to it until now. And again, that has nothing to do with the movie. It's a victim no. of its own success in the cultural conversation in some ways. Um, oh, oh, one more thing that didn't work. John, what, who is the parasite? Like, what's that about? <sighs> you interrupted, you, 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 you like intercepted the bit I was going to do because I was going to immediately, <laughs> you, I, I was going to throw in a real quick, uh, you know, Mike, we, we strive to be a factual show. Like, I, I think so, right? We don't want to yeah. lie to our listening yeah. audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please tell, please tell the people how often you rewatch There Will Be Blood. Because I, I refuse to believe it's once a year. I refuse it, to believe That's accurate. I haven't. It's not. I will be, I will be I honest. I assume every I day you watch There Will Be Blood. I didn't watch it last year because of the birth of my son. And I just haven't watched movies. Um, that's actually... I, a slightly more incredible statement than you may realize because you have just placed it sort of you're you're like i didn't get a chance to watch it it got interrupted by the birth of my son the yeah. implication is that literally an that act is of the, god that is the is scale the yeah that, that is the scale not watch there be blood <laughs> you're like if 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 there's a natural the miracle disaster, of life john or is the, the miracle only thing. of life if we discover aliens Mike, but it's but it's movie night. Mike is like, uh, I am watching There Will Be Blood tonight. So let me turn on the news later. They're gonna sh they're gonna play the replay. You know, whatever. I'll I'll find out. Later. <laughs> this is really important. Okay. Well, Mike. Uh... We are finally on to Stray Thoughts. Mike and I have each prepared a selection of Stray Thoughts. Why do I introduce this section? It's so dumb. I don't know. Every single it's time dumb. I start <laughs> saying what it is, and then I'm like, you know, it's just thoughts. It's Stray Thoughts. It's what it says. Let's just go. I'm done. 
This is the okay. last introduction I've ever doing for this section. Let's do this it. Stray thoughts. Let's just trade. Mike, go first. Is the dad continuing to fold pizza boxes without blinking while the house fills with poison? The most dad move you've ever seen. It's a like, it's a great. I dad could move. see my dad doing that, like legitimately, just like, nope, we are here to do a job and we're gonna we're get just... the job done. <laughs> That's I don't awesome. know. You, you just reminded me. I was never quite clear if I understood this joke. When she says about a quarter of them are wrong and they look at him, is the implication that he was doing them wrong? Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? I think he was just trying to do it as quickly as Tough possible. Beat. Remember? Because he's like, I got a system. And the whole point is the system didn't work, which is also a beautiful moment because it sets up later when he's like, there is no plan. Like, this is the guy who always acts like he has a plan. I know how to crack oh the code. It. Anyways, it's an dude, awesome movie. Dude, so this deep. Movie has, this movie has a lot of layers to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, great point. It's funny you said your dad. I was going to say, yes, I could see you my yeah, father absolutely. in your house just being like, we got this. And everyone else is just suffering. Yep. <laughs> it's just not there. Hap- happened last week. Um, Hot take. Should the Kim family have just started a business? Uh, <laughs> well, it says they tried I like, wonder, multiple no, 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 no. times. I, I do. Clear. Okay. The, and then I also wrote, I do understand part of the dramatic irony is in the fact that apart from Kijong, all of them actually perform their various jobs very well, despite the fact that they lack the qualifications to obtain such employment. Yeah. So I know yeah. that is part of the dramatic irony, but I feel like they should have just started like a, a house cleaning, but you know, just they, like a housekeeping sort of gig. There's a Do they really of, say that? Yeah. There's a number of lines. Every single poor family in this, I'm pretty sure almost every single character makes a offhanded comment at some point about like, I started a bakery. I started this and then it went under and it's kind of, I mean, this is the the grief and the despair of people who don't have options and don't have safety nets, right? That's like the concept. Well, so the real story thought is I'm just an unobservant. Yeah, you're like, why don't they just eat cake? I don't understand. Yeah, Um, yeah. Okay, good good times. This is a good start, I think, to stray thoughts in general for me. I always like it when when you have a stray thought that I immediately like, well, John, the movie addressed that. It kind of happens a lot. Yeah. It happens a lot. I'm going to say it. Yeah. Um, Uh, I'm going to blame that on the subtitles. Yeah, sure. It's, it's, yeah. They don't speak enough English in this movie. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> don't you don't you ever say that again? <laughs> there ahead. are two two lines of this movie I want to shout out. It really it's like well I guess it's two scenes in one line. Um, again, the absolute BS of the daughter looking at the kid's painting and like talking about its meaning is literally how I feel anytime someone is bragging about their kid's artwork. Like, tell me it's I'm incredible. wrong. Tell me it's not exactly you're just like, oh, yeah. Hit me. And then, Hit me with it. Oh, my God. Oh, wait, the line. Not, I, thought you, I thought you had to go. I'm no, here, it goes, it here we go. Here we okay, go. Here we go. The line is amazing. Kiwu is looking at the child's artwork with the mom. And she says, it's a chimpanzee, isn't it? And she says, a self-portrait. <laughs> like, <laughs> Mike, can I blow your mind real quick, though? Because this was a later story thought of mine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's amazing. That's a hilarious moment. Do you realize what that painting actually is? No, tell me. It's it's Zhang Sei. It's what? him. Like, look at it again. It's like two big eyes with oh. the. It looks exactly like this movie has so many layers. It's oh unreal. My gosh, that's awesome. That is what that is. Doesn't that so like? It's so funny in the moment, but once you realize that, I I, I didn't. Figure that out, by the way. Like, I read that, and then we rewatch it. And that's like, wild, dude. This movie's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still an amazing moment. Like, you're not wrong. Like, it's just another layer of how incredible it is. But 
I just so blew good. your mind a little bit, didn't I? Yeah, that's awesome. That's wild. Easter eggs. Uh, did you have another one you wanted to do, or you want me to go? Yeah, I can go. Um, do you have a worse nightmare than you getting into a scuffle with a drunk stranger trying to piss on your home? <laughs> also, is this just depicting what life in New York is like? I, I'm so mad he just took that joke from me. In the last literally <laughs> 0.5 seconds. It's like from from 2,000 miles away or whatever, you just reached into the void and said, oh, this is what John's about to say. Let me just take this from him. Uh, so because of that, I'm not going to acknowledge the rest of the bit and just move on because I'm, so, I'm too mad. I'm too mad. Uh, so yes, it's in your four, worst nightmare. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's my worst nightmare. I hate it. Um, yeah. But I, I did also, I agree with Key Take that I'm very impressed uh, with Min's uh, shouting at the guy. I'm like, that is an impressive young man. Who, yeah. Uh, was he shouting at him, get a grip or something like that? Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't do that. Dude, I would let my daughter date that young man. That's all I'm there saying. There you go. See? Yeah. Uh, Husband because material. You're, because you're classist, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Um... <laughs> In four years, the parks never had any work done on their home from someone who would have figured out the basement thing. Because I feel like any yeah. utilities work, right? Like, wouldn't it just be like, hey, where does that cable go? Isn't that isn't it just like once that happens, the jig is up? I don't get it. I'm not saying yeah. it's a plot hole. I didn't notice it in the movie. But just thinking about it after the fact, I'm like, really? I just feel like someone that would have come up at some point. I don't know. It's a good point. Um, here's a, here's an equally good point. More awkward sex scene. The poor people cosplay in Parasite or the dead cat one from her. I'm not going to respond. <laughs> uh, just, 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 just straight up. We're, uh, what's, uh, what's your power ranking? What's the, what's the worst hang? <laughs> Those two sex scenes. <laughs> or inside Llewellyn Davis. <laughs> I like I I love that Lewin Davis sneaks in there. I'm gonna say the dead cat's uh, pretty tough. Wait, did uh, Lewin Davis win? Did he win? Did he finally we retire oh, the bit? Did he win? He won. Nah, no, nah, Lewin Davis is the toughest. I'm sorry. I I I, 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 <laughs> I wasn't thinking clearly. He clearly he's clearly clearly in the worst state. It's a better uh, hang to hang out with two rich Koreans cosplaying sex poor people. Lewin Davis. <laughs> Oh my god, that's so awkward. I forgot. <laughs> Throw in Baron Arcona and you got yourself a date. Anyway, let's go. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, there has, in all of human history, never been a cleaning job on par with the on the rainy night when they clean up the park's living room in the <sighs> eight minutes before they get there. And what I'm really saying here is it's actually a gaping plot hole because there is like there's like alcohol spilled on the ground. There's like I think one of them breaks a glass and she yeah, actually cuts herself glass. on. Yeah. And, and somehow again, eight minutes later, and we clearly see them just sort of wrangling everything into like one or two spots. Somehow the, the park family is just cool. Just yeah. like, you know, they, they smell something a little bit weird, but that's it. I don't buy just, it. That's just the poor people. That's just the poor people. Exactly. I, I don't buy it, but if I have to buy it, it's just, it's an incredible job by the Kims. Again, yeah. they, yeah, they, they, shout out to them. And they work in a murder. It's kind of amazing. Um, yeah. Oh, related to cleaning, all I wrote was this. Bruh, the sewage flood scene. Bruh. Yeah. Oh, my God. 
Actually, the most harrowing scene of the of the so, movie. Actually, when she's it sitting on that nervous. on the lid of the toilet and it's just like coming in like splurts. Oh, <laughs> it's weird. yeah, it's 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 crazy. Um, the Kim's household could be described as a semi basement. Uh, Bong Joon Ho has described this household. So this is a quote from him: "Something that is firmly below the ground, but doesn't want to believe it is, just like the people living in it." Oh, whoa. Isn't that tough? Dude. Isn't that just like, yeah, again, there's a lot going on in this movie. Uh, but when I read that he said that, I just had to include that. I was like, I was like, damn, man. <laughs> tough beat. Oh, here's a good question for you, John. Yeah. Was Karl Marx right? <laughs> That's all I wrote? <laughs> Eat the rich. You know, I said at the beginning we might alienate one or two of our more conservative listeners, but I didn't think you were going to take take the bull by the horns i'm just so. asking questions john okay, <laughs> okay. i'm just asking okay. questions yeah yeah 100 100 percent. i'm just gonna move on um quote unquote people who ride the subway have a special spell uh i do ride the subway every day to work now so i just wanted to <laughs> i just wanted to put those two statements next to each other and just you know i don't know it's a tough beat i guess i just hope uh i hope i guess i hope i'm i'm, I'm good i don't know oh, i man, thought about I- it though i was like geez when I finally visit you in New York, I'm the first thing I'm going to do is be like, oh, oh. yeah, like, I'll turn your nose. What was that, Mike? And I'm like, oh, very silent. Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, my God. And then Ricky and I are going to cosplay as you poor New Yorkers in our. Yeah. Anyways, I'm done. Yeah. Anyway. As, as you do. As you do. As we do. Um, that's too much. I apologize, Ricky. I, lo- I love that's you. Um, to, man, this back and forth. They are rich, but still nice. They're nice because they're rich. Oof. <sighs> What do you think? What do you think? A or B? A and the B? Chicken or egg? It's chicken or egg, yeah. I think the movie yeah. the movie There's literally no... is trying to make you realize that there is no answer to that question. Yeah. Um, yeah. That you, you can make a compelling argument both sides. Yeah. Did that song not get stuck in your head for like... Yeah, weeks? yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. He made also, a... He, Created yeah. a better musical than uh, Spielberg did in an entire movie. I mean, clearly, no, no question about it. Also, yeah. just amazing meme material. That there's, there's a lot of good memes, uh, yeah. in the around the time. Probably why it won the Oscar. For being honest, yeah, I think you're yeah. right. Memes are ultimately art, I guess. Ugh. They are. Anyway, it's the kissing the babies of 2022. Oh, I'm sad. Okay, got a two-parter question for you. Yeah. One, how long are you going to make it in the basement? And two, if I was trapped in the basement, would you devote your life to the capitalistic system in order to rescue me? Uh, second one, no. Okay, good. Got it out of the way early. Yeah, I, I, I just, I didn't want to, you know, it's like a Band-Aid, right? I just wanted to pull it off. I didn't want you to sit in false hope for a few minutes like Kiwu <laughs> presumably does for the rest I'm of just, his life at I'm the just, end of this movie. I'm just doing Morse code and John never even came to look. <laughs> never come to look. No. <laughs> also, I want the plausible deniability that I never even knew you were there. I yeah, think that's fair. the that's the big point, too. Yeah. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. I don't remember the first question. actually. How long, I, I how just, long would you make it living down there? Oh, it's actually like kind of like your dream, isn't it? I think it, it would be except for the sneaking up to get food. Like that oh, yeah. is like, I, I'm like anxious just thinking about that. Yeah, it's, it's, like that. it's very harrowing. Not a fan, yeah. not a fan. But if I can get some sort of delivery worked out, um, 
Like, I don't know, get Pizza Does Hut Uber, to, like, just Uber drop it off deliver? on the corner? I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think if that, if, if I can pull that off, then I'm it. I'm golden. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll bring you baby milk in a bottle if you want. I mean, there. it's good to know the limits of our friendship. We've really explored <laughs> those a lot on this podcast. Um, This is another kind of cool cultural thing that was a little bit lost. So the scene where Ki Wu is giving his dad acting lessons uh, in order to, to become the driver, right? Uh, that's apparently... Uh, so this is from a Reddit comment, so like, you know, asterisk. I Facts. Know if, yeah, this is totally factual. But apparently that's a bit of a meta joke because uh, that actor, Song Kang Ho, who we already talked about a lot before, is like really, really, really esteemed in Korea. Like, like, like the, the person on the comment was like kind of like De Niro in the nineties or something. Right. Where it's just like, mm. you know, this is like one of one of, if not the best actor of the last 30 years in this country. So there's apparently like kind it's, it's kind it read as a joke to create audiences that this kid, it, it would be like in a nineties movie. If Dana Carvey uh, was giving, I don't know why Dana Carvey, but if Dana Carvey was giving Robert De Niro acting lessons, right. You would, mm. you would chuckle a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's yeah, just another thing that was missed. Love that. Um, I got one more, and it's a it's a big question. You could say it's existential. Okay. Does Soul need the Batman? Is this what the movie's about? Is the movie trying to get us to the conclusion that he needs to clean these streets? I am now so interested. I am. We are going to finish this podcast, and I'm going to go on Google and search South Korean superhero. Because you have just opened up, I am, I am, I am so overwhelmingly consumed now with wondering uh, what their culture with superheroes are. Because uh, so the answer is no. Obviously, Batman is is a billionaire, so I'm pretty sure he would make the situation worse. Mike, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting take. Um, Wait, being a billionaire is morally unjust in 2022. You heard it here. Billionaires uh, have made the world worse. What? <laughs> how could that be? Um, man, we're really going all out, are we? Uh, but God's just... blessed them so much. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know how this happened, but I have three left. What? Uh, what? What? What went wrong in our county? Were we got, listeners? Just to pull back I the curtain, I literally numbered mine, so it's not. Yeah, me. I did too. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. How do I have ten? What? What are you doing over there? I, I oh, it was supposed to be eight. Yeah, you told me that. Yeah. Okay, well, I have three to go. Let me. I'm just going to roll through these real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone really likes the detail of the fact that the stone, which we didn't even mention in the allegory metaphor, but is actually pretty interesting in that conversation, but the stone floats in the scene where the house is flooding. Um, yeah. Which is also really cool because it kind of explains why Ki-Woo doesn't just die after Junsei, like throws the stone at his head, right? Yeah. Uh, apparently, it was a happy accident. Wasn't supposed to do that. Um, wow. But in Boon Jung Ho was like, oh, once I realized that after the fact, I was like, that was cool, I guess. Uh, but just goes to show, I think, that sometimes there's a, there's a little bit of luck in here. Because I just guess read he's a lot not of in people, control. Ha-ha. <laughs> I just read a lot of people Jump. who really responded to that detail. And it's it's just funny to me. That what like, is this, amateur hour? <laughs> um, the line where... The Germans, he says, Germans really do eat a lot of sausages and beer. In Germany, they actually made the family American 
And the line is that Americans really do love hamburgers and soda, which I kind of take offense to. I'm just going to say, first of all, because even if you like hamburgers, you don't have them just in your house. You don't just have stockpiles of hamburgers like in the refrigerator. That makes no sense. Um, and secondly, yeah, that's fair, actually. I, I get yeah, it. I don't know why you're upset. I feel like you just are looking in a mirror and that's annoying to you. I think it's because I had a hamburger a couple of days ago and I, I feel a little bit attacked. <laughs> I yeah, attacked. I went to Five Guys. I had to walk like 30 minutes because it's not even near me, but I just really wanted one. Um, last question, Mike, speaking of the German family at the end, would you move into a house with a brutal murder a few days earlier? And let's say just for sake of argument, it's as beautiful as this house. Yeah. The house is gorgeous. Yeah. No, no qualms. You're in. Dude, he's dead. They dead. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a ghost person. I'm not afraid. Um, you know, obviously, if I was told there was a uh, homeless murderer living in the basement, I'd be a little bit more concerned. That might have affect. Questions. That might affect yeah. it a little bit. Yeah, it might shave yeah. a couple of thousand off the cost, but uh, <laughs> Just a couple it's not thousand. a deal breaker. I'll be honest with you. You come back to the guy. Given given the homeless murderer in the basement, can we knock it down? Uh, yeah, from well, eighty five to just eighty. And just, he seems you know, like he's just pretty take a little out off the top. He's pretty out of the way, so it's not like it's gonna get in the arc. It's not gonna bother us. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, fun fact: My family did this, um, and and I've had people respond like really dramatically to this from all spectrums of like mm. political or religious or whatever. Uh, but when we moved to the to Florida the first time, we moved to a place called High Springs. This was like in the night. I was like a little kid. I was like two or three. Uh, but the house we moved to, we got really a really great deal on because the prior owner there was like a murder suicide situation at the house. Uh, so not great, but my parents were like, I, we didn't like know anyone and we just needed a house on the cheap, uh, which I always have felt the same way about, but it's funny to be, cause a lot of people that I've mentioned that to have been like seriously horrified or like, I'm not going to lie. When you said my family did this, I thought you meant lived in the basement of a rich person's house. I was like, Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's strange. Well, like John okay. has really skipped over some parts of his life story. Hasn't he? He has not explained what Latin America was like very well. Um, it, it was like this. You're right. I think that's it. Mike, anything else? No. Uh, who's the parasite? Right. What's that about? Stick around after the break. We're going to get into some of our essays. We prepared for this one. everybody welcome back uh in this part of the podcast mike and i have each prepared some essays that just dive deeper into some aspect of the movie uh mike i believe you're going first if that's okay that is correct uh cool whenever you're ready okay for years evil was a loaded word for me largely due to the jacked up churches of my childhood who used it honestly quite flippantly and often And usually they use the word evil for some pretty simplistic purposes to one, judge and condemn the moral character of individuals, usually those who violated one of their arbitrary rules, or two, simply to describe the demonic, the spiritual evil that they saw lurking behind anything that they couldn't explain or really anyone that they opposed and had no desire to empathize with. Evil was simply what those other people did and were directed by. A word solely used for producing shame, fear, and scapegoats. 
which honestly led me to flat out reject its use entirely for most of my life. However, in recent years, I've actually returned to using this word evil, though I've come to define it and use it in very different ways. You see, I've come to believe that there is evil in this world, but rather than being something out there that other people participate in, I've actually come to see it as something that we all participate in. Through my own spiritual work, I've actually come to believe that evil is really just any time that we as human beings participate in actions, beliefs, attitudes, or systems that dehumanize others, that fracture right, fair, and equitable relationships, that rob others of their abilities to pursue their own destinies. And I use the word evil for that because honestly, that's what's truly broken our world. And fascinatingly, with this more nuanced and broader redefinition, I've come to see that evil still holds, in this kind of weird way, a semblance of those two broader categories of evil that I rejected as a youth. You see, on one hand, under this redefinition, I still think that evil is definitively something that can be applied to the individual. Not to describe the violation of arbitrary rules, but rather for describing the deeper root of how we as individuals fracture those right relationships by directly acting in ways that deny the dignity of others through things like violence, theft, objectification, manipulation, and so on. In other words, I actually kind of agree with the broader point, but individual evil is that broader phenomenon whereby we see another as less than ourselves and then explicitly act accordingly. And then on the other hand, and this is what I actually find more interesting given the trauma that I had as a youth in these churches. You see, on the other hand, this redefinition also accepts that there is this other category of evil existing in our world as well. This other more vague and at times mysterious form of evil that invisibly lurks amongst us and contributes to what we believe is broken in our societies. No, not the demonic. I find that largely to be silly speculation that's more often than not dangerous. But at the same time, I still believe in a form of evil that transcends the individual level. What I've come to call corporate evil. This process whereby an evil action, belief, or attitude, one of those that fractures right relationship or denies the dignity of another, when such a thing takes root in the foundation of a society or a culture where what began maybe as an individual action like theft or violence gets woven into the very cultural narrative, mythology, or identity of an entire society, so much so that it becomes accepted and entrenched within the very worldview of its people, infiltrating the very norms, stories, principles, and beliefs of those brought up within that society, and shaping the very systems that guide life within it. A process that produces a social group that over time comes to accept this entrenched form of corporate evil, the specific fracturing of right, equitable, fair relationship, and the corresponding dehumanization that comes with it as being somehow justifiable and even just or good. But it comes to be understood by that society as simply the way things are supposed to be. This is what I've come to believe is corporate evil. What those symbols and metaphors of the demonic are often speak to. 
And I think it's a powerful term to hold on to because it's so insidious when you see it actually acting out in our world. You see, this form of corporate evil comes to reside invisibly in the areas of assumption and system in a society, making complicit all who benefit from them, thus becoming nearly impossible to identify and challenge by those within them, those participating within their systems, within their assumptions, without that person condemning themselves or tearing apart the social fabric of their world in the process. But when left unchallenged, such invisible narratives and systems and assumptions act as demons. And what I mean by that is they come to possess the individuals within their societies potentially leading them to perpetuate things that they never find acceptable, looking backwards with hindsight or from any objective standpoint. This kind of corporate evil is how things like racism, greed, injustice, genocide, and death become entrenched in a culture's view of another group or person and ultimately get judged as good in the moment. And ultimately, I bring this entire concept of these two modes of evil up because I think Parasite might wrestle with both in the most nuanced, convicting, and humane way that I've ever seen in a movie. In many ways, exploring this theme is at the heart of that film's central allegory. On one hand, we have the Kim family, a family caught in cyclical poverty created by the accepted economic system in which they live a broken, evil system that they navigate through with what's easily labeled as acts of individual evil. Direct actions such as lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, and abusing others to try to get ahead or get what they want. But then on the other hand, and this is where the nuance of the film shines, there's the Park family. A family who, if we only see from a lens of individual evil, would be easy for us to label as innocent victims. And yet Parasite refuses to see them as precisely that. Because in the film's view of the world, individual evil isn't all there is. Ultimately, the Park family is complicit. They have benefited from this same system that's dehumanized the Kemp's, clearly ignoring and even justifying the negative effects it's created on others as good or even necessary. And though their participation in this form of corporate evil isn't as easily identifiable as the Kim's family's transgressions, its symptoms are still ever-present in their small comments about the distasteful smell of those serving them, in their willingness to throw aside or demand indignity from those below them, in their disinterest in the Kim's lives outside of how they benefit the family. What we see is that though they do not act explicitly to harm the Kim family, their attitudes and assumptions and beliefs and values create this indifference, this objectification, this commodification, this degradation of others, these evils motivated by invisible attitudes, narratives, and beliefs that produce more subtle abuses, ones that are more likely to fester, grow, and spread. You actually see this as the Kim family moves up the ladder of this system. We actually watch as their actions become less in frame and their attitudes more so. It's their attitudes towards those next to or below them on the hierarchy that we watch get infected and we watch the Kims get possessed by this corporate evil, this evil force leading them to degrade those that they should have seen as their equals. 
We see it as the Park family secluded life comes into view more and more, and we get more glimpses of how their internal narratives tangibly hurt those they see as less than themselves without them ever actually realizing they're hurting them. And ultimately, what the film builds to is how both forms of evil fester and lead to disaster, to the explosive, inevitable conclusion as individual and corporate evil become fully intertwined in a true moment that we can only describe as possession, where key explodes with an act of visible evil, an act of violence that he doesn't even seem to understand the why of, committed against Dong, who's thoroughly degraded Ki, but still dies with a look of befuddlement on his face over why this is taking place. Both men, in this moment of possession are totally confused about why what's happening is taking place. And ultimately both men are robbed of their destinies. This inevitable outcome of corporate evil laid bare in an individual form. It's such a powerful, heartbreaking vision of both evils and their consequence. And ultimately beyond the feat in and of itself that Bong Joon-ho is able to perfectly capture this complex conversation in his movie. Beyond that, what I truly admire about his work is how humanely he chooses to engage with these heavy, complex, and challenging themes. It's how, despite depicting such horror, I never once get the impression that he's playing judge over these characters. Instead, I always seem to feel an overwhelming sense of tragedy radiating from the story. A haunting realization that in the midst of such vague but powerful forces of evil, there can never be a clear good or bad, hero or villain. There can only be a dense grayness that clouds everything. A recognition that all are simply operating within a system that's evil and that they are trapped within and don't understand. Each playing a role in conflict with others who are just playing theirs, precisely what the system was always designed to produce. In other words, what I love about Parasite is that it neither judges nor excuses its characters for their individual and corporate evils, nor does it offer simplistic fantasy-esque solutions for overcoming such gray brokenness. Instead, it simply seeks to empathetically understand these forces. And in doing so, I believe, it invites us into a grayer vision of evil that we must find ourselves included within. It invites us to, with self-honesty and non-judgment, see where we've participated in such visible and invisible forms of fracturing relationships, where we've allowed ourselves to harm others or break equitable relationships or become possessed by corporate beliefs, attitudes, stories, and systems that produce the dehumanization of others. And though Parasite does not provide clear solutions, I choose to believe that in such seeing, it does provide us with an invitation to take part in change by choosing to go a different way. Repenting from where we've individually perpetuated the fracturing of right relationship and relenting to an exorcism of sorts from corporate evil, surrendering our privilege and pursuing the liberation of human beings from systems and patterns that are unseen 
but still break our world. You know, I don't know if you had to take it all political, Mike. This is not a this is not a political all you leftists want to make everything political. This is just a good old-fashioned thriller thriller adventure movie. I don't, I just don't know why you had to do that. Why know? can't we just why can't I'm, we just I'm, focus I'm on Jesus? Why can't we just focus on Jesus? Huh? Why can't we just be kind? Why can't we just why can't we just be kind to each other? I've always said it. Yeah, man, I I I think that's incredible. I I I know that, you know, what's funny is I don't know if I have so much a direct response as as I'm almost more curious just to ask you questions, because I know that um, in the course of our conversations, this has come up quite a lot in in the Mm. context of um, like evangelical Christianity, which you kind of hinted at. Um, I I don't know how much you want to dive into that, but I, I guess I'm curious to ask, you know, from a practical standpoint, so, so someone might be listening and might be thinking like, you know, what are the ways that I am engaging in, in corporate evil mm. and where do I go from there? And I think those are kind of the most valid starting places, right? Um, sure. I kind of know my response. Like I, so I guess I'll just, so, so you know, I would say that like the two most valuable things in terms of, of sort of pushing back against that are the first would be exposure to different cultures and lifestyles. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, because in, in, you know, that's, that's is a very ironically lefty answer, but there's a good reason for it, which is that it's so much easier to enact prejudice against people and oppression against people who are totally invisible to you. Right. Sure. Just by definition, and like, and it's what I, you know, within Parasite, you even see that you see the ways that by not seeing suffering, you can just keep something totally out of your mind, even if it's literally in your basement. Um, and so I, I think that that's probably the biggest thing is just trying to recognize where there are blind spots in terms of what do I, who are the groups of people that I form just dramatic you know, pre assumptions about the way I worded that sounds like I'm talking about race, which that might apply, but this can apply to anything. This can apply to culture or, 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 you know, geographic region or socioeconomic class, obviously race, um, sexuality, stuff like that. That's, that's the value of, of, you know, finding those other people is, is I think you end up understanding that a lot more and and that kind of oppression can't go unnoticed. Right. Yeah. If it's someone, you know, It, it doesn't make sense. Um, I kind of asked you a question and started to answer it. So I'm, you know, if, if you think that's an interesting part of your conversation around this, cause I just think that would be almost my first response if I was just listening to this. Right. Um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Or? Yeah. I think, I think exposure is, is an obviously a good answer. I think there's always a complicated, um, bit of this that I'm, I'm, I, I honestly, we can't address in this podcast with any, um, great degrees which is you know there's almost like a victim blaming that takes place in corporate america where it's like well if you don't want the environment to collapse maybe you should recycle as an individual and like that does frustrate me because it's like no actually most of the environmental decay of our world is created by massive corporations and um my recycling isn't going to do anything about that so that is where it gets complicated right because there are these like 
um, systemic issues that, you know, I can recycle all day long, but ultimately not to get political, um, how I vote on these issues is going to make the biggest change a lot of the time. Um, mm. And honestly, there's also a recognition that I can't control a lot of the fixing of these problems. And, and I do have to kind of embrace that recovery mindset of controlling what I can control um, and just doing my best to not be part of the problem. But I just want to name that grayness there because that does complicate this conversation, right? Mm. Um, I will say one of the things that has always enamored me, and this could be a monologue of its own one day, is these Hebrew words in the Old Testament, which are tzedakah and mishpat, which get translated as righteousness and then justice. And what I love about these words and what has been informative for me as I've engaged them is one, you know, righteousness is always like moral holiness is what I was taught in evangelicalism, right? It's like, I don't masturbate or whatever. Um, That means you're righteous. And that's not what that word means at all. Like, in the, in the biblical concept, like righteousness is fundamentally a relational word. It's that right, fair, equitable relationship that is meant to be how we relate to our, to each other and everything else. Right. Um, Mm. and, and I like that because it gets out of the vagueness of a lot of the moralism that can so often come with fundamentalism. It's like, I can look at a relationship in our world. We'll just say, uh, between me and the homeless, And I can fundamentally, regardless of whatever like wiggling I want to do to get out of feeling convicted by the fact that um, our system of living has created the homeless, I can't look at that and be like, that's a right, fair, equitable relationship between me and that person, right? Um, I can't look at the competition built into our systems and think if the goal is right, fair, equitable relationships and think that this is working, right? So Mm. I like that there's something concrete about that where it's like, don't just look at... um, some vague moral principle, look at the on the ground nature of the relationships in any given society or system and judge whether those are right, yeah. fair and equitable. Um, and I like that because then it leads to Seneca or justice, which again, justice gets so vague, but that word Seneca is very tangible. And it means like, what are the concrete actions I must take to restore right, fair, equitable relationships when they are fractured? And I think mm-hmm. that's the beautiful part of how a reframing of justice kind of answers your question. I'm going a long way about it, which is we get very real about what the goal is, right? Fair, equitable relationships. And then we get very real about like, so what concrete actions, not like lovey-dovey love people, you know, what concrete actions need to be taken for these to be restored? Do I need to give away some of my wealth because it's imbalanced? Do I need to tangibly stop eating meat? Do I need to like, tangibly i don't know any pick your issue and what it gets you Mm. down to the to like the nitty-gritty of is like what concrete thing do you need to change about your life to be a part of restoring right relationship with this group Mm. of people or this person um and honestly that's kind of where the rubber hits the road for me because that's where it gets into how do i need to research my voting better how do i need to get real about what serious topics are how do i need to volunteer in my community what groups of people have I secluded myself from? Um, once I see the problem, which again is measurable, I can then start taking concrete solutions to at least um, be a part of some marginal solution within it. Um, and that was a tangent. I apologize if that was all over the place, but that's kind of like my response. I don't know. It's a big problem, so it's going to get a big answer.
Oversight is a beast with many faces. We've talked about this quite a lot by now, how the story beats and styles deftly float between caper and comedy and thriller and horror and drama. Set next to the rest of the movie, that makes the last scene feel maybe somewhat understated by comparison. Over nearly silent shots of soul in the winter, and then in a sunny and still dream dream sequence, the movie ends more with a whimper than a bang. As Kiwu, having deciphered a letter from his trapped and hidden father, speaks out his response. Dad, today I made a plan. A fundamental plan. I'm going to earn money. A lot of it. University, a career, marriage, those are all fine, but first I'll earn money. When I have money, I'll buy the house. On the day we move in, Mom and I will be in the yard, because the sunshine is so nice there. All you'll need to do is walk up the stairs. Take care until then. So long. Even in this contemplative, somber moment, Bong still finds one more trick to play on the audience. As the touching reunion between Kiwu and Kitake culminates on the lawn, the screen fades slowly to black. And I don't know about you, but for just one moment, I was fooled into believing that that scene might have been real after all. But then cold reality fades back in, and Kiwu is still in that same sub-basement house. It's not the flashiest scene in the movie. It doesn't disorient you. It doesn't disorient you like when Moon Guang reveals the basement beneath the house. It doesn't set you on edge like the park's unexpected early return from their camping trip. But I find this last scene to be by far what I think about most when I think about this movie. Like many great works of art, Parasite has a certain synecdoche element where small parts of the movie serve as a microcosm of the entire thing's themes and ideas. And this last speech I perceive as a culmination of the film's themes. Parasite is a movie that's obsessed with the idea of being trapped, of being locked in circumstances outside of your control. From the very first shot, we are constantly being confronted by our character's desire to exert greater control on their life situations. The Kims, living in squalor and financially reeling from lack of employment, talk about the value of having a plan, of taking decisive, considered steps in order to live the life they want to live. But they find themselves over and over at the mercy of the world around them, in the form of a rainstorm that floods their home, in the form of the parks that order them around, that hold their employment over their heads, in the form of Moon Guang and her husband, Jean Sei, holding them captive once they have the video of them. They are always in a battle with everything around them to try to gain more control, and long term, they seem to always be losing. Their lot gets so bad that even the idealistic father loses hope in the last act of the film, laying on the floor of a gymnasium surrounded by hundreds of other refugees of a storm. He declares that there is no point in making plans, that the only plan which is guaranteed not to fail is to have no plan at all. That his son at the end of the movie has elected to, again, create a plan of escape, murky and unformed as it may be, may initially seem like a sign of hope. Kiwu hasn't given up, right? 
he's going to work hard and change the lives of himself and his family, right? But that sentence sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous because it's so obvious that Kiwo's vision is nothing more than a fantasy. We know that the circumstances from the beginning of the film, when none of the family could attain reasonable employment, have not appreciably changed. We know that Kiwu has no actual way of attaining that kind of wealth. Even if he could, we know that Kitek won't survive in that basement for the years or decades it would take for Kiwu to actually buy the house. This is, in that sense... The last bit of tragedy the movie has to offer, the promise that our characters will forever be trapped and imprisoned in this system. But as Kiwa himself constantly might say, this is a moment of the film that is quote unquote so metaphorical. Because all of the above is true within the story, but is also the most poignant voicing of the film's theme of the horror that can be inflicted upon people by highly stratified economic systems. Kiwu dreams of liberation. In the clearest, most straightforward path, in fact the only one he really knows to exist, is through money. He thinks, I must earn enough then I can have enough power and resources to buy my family's liberation. He even explicitly says that education and marriage are side stories to this main goal of earning enough money. But the tragedy of the metaphor is the falseness of the narrative. Parasite is well aware that at the heart of financial oppression sits a fundamental lie that if you work hard enough, you can have whatever you want. Throughout the movie, this is mostly framed in context of material goods, of security, of social standing. But in this last moment, Kiwu seeks to place even his hope of freedom upon that same foundation, that same idea, make enough money and liberation will follow. The challenge of Parasite to me is to recognize myself in all the different roles the film presents. In some ways, I am a financial oppressor. Like the parks, I'm blissfully unaware of the ways my spending and resources allow me to take advantage of others' dignity. In other ways, I'm like Moon Guang and her husband, hiding from the grim realities of an exploitive world, desperate just to scrape by with the things and people I care about intact. But in the end, I think most of us are most like Kiwu, because we believe that we have more agency within these systems than we really do. We believe that if only we had enough, anything we wanted would be available to us. But as the film is well aware, that is nothing more than a lie, a lie that benefits people who already have power. The spiritual call here is not to give up on your attempts to enact change or to do good in the world, but just to increase your awareness of where your efforts are going. I think the lesson of Parasite and kind of the lesson of spirituality is to not see your world as something that can be controlled if you only have enough of a given resource, political power, property, or obviously money but instead to recognize and maybe to push back against the cultural narrative that would tell you to obtain those resources regardless of what you have to do to other people to get them. 
that would tell you that the ends justify the means as long as you can get enough to do the right things in the world. That would tell you that your own power, your own status is the best thing that could happen in the world. Wealth is not the key to liberation. And the greatest tragedy of the movie and the greatest tragedy of life sometimes is when people choose to place all of their hope in it. Yeah, I mean, I hear that, John, but like, who is the parasite, though? You know what I mean? Okay, okay. Do you know what I wrote? Because I thought you were going to say, I wrote, so Karl Marx, huh? Yeah, Because I just assumed you were going to say it. I just assumed we were just going to go for it. Hey, that Karl Marx guy, he was on to some things. <laughs> Karl Marx is on to some stuff, man. I like to keep you on your toes. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that's great. I actually, you know, the ending of this movie is is the scene that, like, makes this, in so many ways, one of the most effective modern tragedies. And, you know, there's some tragic elements that are obvious, like the dad, who we come to love, finds himself in the basement. But I think, like, the most tragic part of it is what you're describing, which is the son ultimately determines that the way to no longer be trapped within this house is to ultimately buy the house so he can be trapped in the house. Right. It's this Mm -hmm. idea that I will enter the system so I can defeat the system. And there's just like a fundamental delusion to that. That is so relatable. And I actually really like what you're talking about with the idea of like pursuing power and playing the game. And, and, you know, I actually just preached on this last Sunday with the, the, I am fascinated by a vision of evil that understands it not as like a person that we oppose, but rather sees Mm -hmm. it as like a virus. And it's a virus that's its only goal is to spread. Right. And it fundamentally spreads by making us into it. And the most effective way for us to become evil is to, in a delusion, pick up evil's tools and opposing it, thinking that we can defeat evil with its own weapons and in the process becoming evil as we try to fight evil. Right. And that sounds deluded, but, but it's so obvious. It's like, I know this system of wealth and oppression is evil. So I'm going to try to gain as much power within it. I'm going to pick up its tools and try to wield them for what I perceive (laughs) to be good. Never recognizing that I'm just becoming it in the process. Right. And I'm just perpetuating it in the process and and obviously there's something about that that makes your head spin because it sounds so like circular, but that's because it is. It's a it's yeah. a fundamental it's... insanity of our human condition that we can do that, um, and that it's effective at all. And and yeah, th- so when you see him trapped in the house, um, dreaming of how somehow being trapped in the house will free him from the house, I I just find that so dang relatable. It's so powerful. Yeah. You know, something I didn't even, I I totally agree with all of that. I'm there for it. And and something I didn't even hit upon, um, and and this is also just commentary in the film because we held off on talking about the last scene. So just really quickly to gush, because it is actually, I I think it it transcends or it lifts the whole movie into into a transcendent state, right? Yeah, yeah. That it is, it's the, you know, if I'm going to be really blasé about it, it's the cherry on top. Obviously, it's better than that. But, you know, it's just that last little key ingredient that really lifts the entire, like you said, tragedy, allegory, storytelling of the whole thing. 
and something I didn't really get into here um, is is part of why it's so tragic and part of why these narratives are so impactful is because that dream is so beautiful, right? Yeah. It's actually mm. like it's 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 makes it so it's so heartbreaking in the movie because uh I said earlier that, you know, I was momentarily fooled. I was when it when it faded to black. Even in the middle of knowing how ridiculous that scenario was, when it fades to black, I wanted to believe it so bad because it was such a powerful image. It was such a beautiful image yeah. of reuniting. And I think that's the ultimate statement of the movie, though, is is basically saying, you know, you want that to be true. You want to believe that you can get through the system to, again, enact the change you want to enact upon the world, to free yourself or others or your family, to lift yourself out of need and necessity or, you know, to, to get rid of this or that thing that's plaguing you, that's bringing you down, health things or whatever. And it says, but ultimately that's just that it's it's and it's what you said right where you can't use those same tools to escape those same tools it just doesn't make sense but you understand or for my part i think this movie makes me it is it, i watch it i think but i so understand the impulse to do so right yeah i yes. so get why that is what you want to be true um and again it's just so heartbreaking that's not yeah it, it's so baffling um, when you come to the conclusion that the defeat of evil in some way is is refusing to play its game, um, just yeah. like refusing to participate in a way. And and, and there's a, a sinking reality, um, an unsettling reality of the damage that will cause to my person if I were to choose to do that and how much is at stake to lose within what this, especially in what I've been taught is valuable within that system like I'm mm, going to lose yeah. those things, and that's ultimately what causes us more often than not to reject the concept of of refusing to participate. Is that moment where you realize that by doing so, like it's going to exact a cost from me, and ultimately the challenge is is it is my integrity and not being a part of the devastation of others worth it in the end? And mm, yeah. and that's like the fundamental question we all have to ask as we kind of approach these these topics but I, I just think you're spot on i think it's i think that's it Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we do have a final question Mike and I have each prepared for each other. Before we get to that, we do want to let you know on next episode, we are discussing The Dark Knight. This is for our 30th episode. Uh, and The Dark Knight, I think, is the most impactful movie I've seen on culture and me. Mm. Um, which is a pretty big statement, but I'm... I think I'll be able to back up. I'm also kind yeah. of calling a shot. I don't know if I can cash that check. Uh, yeah, don't worry next about episode. it. We'll just forget we said uh, it next time. <laughs> yeah, we'll just forget I said it. It'll be great. Uh, but go ahead. You know, maybe give that a rewatch if you plan to listen to the episode. Again, The Dark Knight. You've all seen it. I don't even know why I'm telling you to rewatch it. Um, final question. Mike, let's say times in the evangelical church get a little tough. Mm. You're uh, you're out of a job. You're Impossible. down. Impossible. 
you're okay. You're down. You're looking for work. You hear that a tech billionaire family has moved into Tallahassee and you decide to pull off a parasite and, and infiltrate their castle of wealth. What do you pretend to be to get into the family? That was a lot of setup, but the Ooh. end question is, what do you pretend to be? I, I have an answer if you need a second. I Yeah, I mean, well, I, I know mine. I think I just pretend to be oh, a therapist. Oh, you, you got it ready to go. Yeah, I just pretend to be a counselor, therapist of some sort. Um, I'm, I actually, that's I fully, so logical, but so boring. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed, but that's but a great I, like, answer. Yeah, I truly are. believe I could have BS that whole psychoanalysis of the kids painting. <laughs> like I was like, oh, that, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> I'm more excited about the possibility of you becoming an art therapist or counselor, but yeah, either way, go. I think that's go. a good direction. I was going to say barista, which is hmm. pretty crazy because it's like, I'm assuming there's a level of wealth. I don't know this, but I'm assuming there's a level of wealth that has in-home baristas. Oh, and if yeah, that exists definitely. somewhere, that's yeah, you, then baby. I think that's my speed. Yeah. You should do Just, that and now. Like, if you think about it, that's only like three drinks a day, probably like maybe five yeah. or six if it's a bigger family. So that's a sweet gig. I'm, I'm actually kind of stoked to do this. I'm, I'm going to yeah. look for it now that, now that I've said all this out loud. Yeah. If you, you know anyone be the music teacher, I mean, you got so many options. That no one, one would require a lot of BSing just to be. Do you think totally anyone wants a, a in-home preacher? <laughs> just individual <laughs> sermons? I don't know. Probably not. I like imagining that they do. I don't think they do. But if that family's out there, I, I kind of want you to connect with them. Yeah, I, I just feel think like, that sounds great. I feel like someone that wealthy wants to be in a community, though, so they can flaunt their wealth. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, that's probably, true. That's true. Probably point. lie and act like it's charity. Uh, <laughs> Karl Marx is right. I'm just moving on. What do you? Okay. What do you got, Mike? So the constant hammering of his smell is the breaking point for the for the yeah. for the father father figure. Um, this one is gonna get real, John. I'm gonna use your experiences of therapy. I want you to answer this honestly. What mm. attribute about yourself would lead you to murder someone if they constantly pointed it out without realizing it? Um. Uh. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I. I. I, I have to think about it. I mean, it's funny. So let's start here. Kill is a pretty high threshold. That's. <laughs> you, you, it's. I. I don't know if I have. Oh, I would like to. You're think a bomb no murder, about John. Me. You have a innate yeah, morality yeah. and moral condition. Oh. Yeah. Uh, but I will say I have like not gone on second dates with people who point out things like, uh, I, I think the biggest one, and this is close to both of our hearts, is that my conversational style, I would go so far as to say our conversational style, tends to be a little bit schizophrenic, right? Mm. Um, it doesn't, I don't think listeners may realize like how much we focus for this podcast and have notes that like us just talking does not sound like this because we bounce topics a lot. Yeah, a lot, a that's lot. fair. Uh, and I would, I've, I've hung out with a few people who have pointed that out to me. I kind of like wanna murder you right now for pointing that out. I'm not gonna lie. I know. Yeah, it's 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 tough. It's tough, but it's. I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. Just because I don't think about it. Obviously, I just talk, and I'm like, yeah, that was a good conversation. That's the frustrating part. Is we're like, that was a good conversation. The person's like, yeah, it was a little bit. I kept thinking, you know, I didn't love how we kept changing topics. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't really love you that much, huh? I guess, uh, I guess that's how that goes. 
Tough beat. Tough beat for that person. That is. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think um, it's got to be something yeah, that you're yeah. like quasi insecure about. Um, that's yeah. a good one. I actually really like that one. If someone was like, you don't make any sense, I'd be like, well, you're dead. And, <laughs> yeah, well, um, you're dead to me. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think maybe a lower stakes one. Like, I mean, I think of things like if someone po- pointed out that I talk too much or something, that would hit an insecurity. Sure, sure. Um, Which is kind of similar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if someone pointed out that my clothes were always like wrinkly or something, like I don't iron my shirts and they just like constantly Whoa. pointed that out, I would kill them. I would just snap. I Man. would just like, I'd be like, it doesn't matter. Like, and I would just murder them. Yeah. But you have just set a podcast and, and you did just, I, I will tell you, you did just provoke a glass shattering moment for me because you do usually have slightly wrinkly clothes, don't you? I don't think of you oh, as yeah, someone yeah. with very like flat clothing yeah that's true truly do not care about the clothing that i wear like it's it it offends my wife how little i care about the clothing i wear um so yeah which i know the most cliche dad thing about you like straight up and i know that about me so it's just like i don't know like if someone was just like hey you have a hole in your sock over and over again i'd be like time to die um so yeah you'd be like that's it that's one too far you have yep. a hole in your head where I <laughs> stab you. Okay. Um, well, John. Oh, but boy. Like, that got, but like, yeah, my, yeah. My real question, though, is like, who is the parasite? I mean, you know what I mean? Okay. I'm just going to, th- you know what? That's it. Thank you all for listening. I'm not, I'm not even going to do the bit. I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep us on. Do you, do you have any other last, don't you dare say who is the parasite? Do you have any other last thoughts for this movie? Is Lewin Davis the parasite? Okay, all right. That's uh, this is we we've lost all of our dignity. We this is a terrible show. I regret making this. Thank you, John. All for listening, you're jumping though. around a lot right now. I can't follow you. Thank you all for listening. My name's Jonathan Devine. Joined as always by Mike Overstreet. Any comments, Mike? No, you're good. Okay, we'll uh, see you guys on the next episode. Bye. Bye.